know what this makes me think of? Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from WCTV in Wilmington. This is episode six of Lost in Translation with Bobby Martin. I'm Sam Perkins, and we are joined today by Jan Cuman, who goes by Q. Hello. I knew him as Coach Q. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, man, I really want to thank you guys for having me here today. It's, welcome, uh, it's great Q. to be here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> So I've been wanting to have Q on. Q is our first guest, number one. We, we've been wanting to start guests. And Old to moves. me, Q is, uh, one, he has the gift of gab, like us, which is good. <laughs> He's opinionated. Uh, also a really, really just fascinating person and personal story. Uh, grew up in the area, grew up biracial, went through a lot of stuff, then went up going to Harvard. Harvard. Uh, uh, I uh, played a little football, then he was a longtime football coach and teacher and, uh, you know, went, had several things in his personal life, illness, personal revelations, uh, finally left the coaching field and that was a very big thing. Um, yeah. I had the opportunity to be an assistant coach for Q for one season. <laughs> I was the worst assistant coach <laughs> that he has ever had. Uh, that's a bold statement. <laughs> yeah. You had a lot, I'll say you had a lot of room for growth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had a lot going on in my personal life that year that was not at my best. True. And, uh, to be honest, you know, Q was someone that I always really looked up to as a person, um, we first met, I was coaching at the school that he was teaching at, and I was actually a good coach back then, or a decent coach you back are. then. Um, Still and, are. And we, we, we encountered each other uh, through mutual contact social media, and we used to talk politics, social stuff, all sorts of stuff. And, and when he had a need, I applied for the job, and then all these things happened, and I just – it was not what – I just wasn't at my finest. And for, for several years after that, you know, we were still connected on, on social media and I would like his stuff. Maybe I would comment every once in a while. But I had a really deep shame of this being someone that I really looked up to that I really felt like I had let down when he gave me an opportunity. And um, it was a very long time before I sort of reached out. And it I don't know if it was before your kind of big announcement on, on Facebook or if it was after, but I had reached out at some point and, and Q, you know, still embraced me and wasn't shaming me about anything. And it was, it was, I had a lot of, you know, we talked about guilt when we were talking about, you know, yeah. with, with my, with Jack and, and mm -hmm. just the inherent Jewish guilt that I carry around anyways from my mom. Uh, that Maybe was Christian genetically. Guilt also. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. all. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's guilty. Everybody's uh, all faces. But, <laughs> but I just—I mean, socially, Jews—they just bear their. No, y'all are pros. Bit. I'm. I, I'm not saying. I'm not saying. With I got a Jewish mother too, so like she's she's there. She's a pro, you know. It's she's the Tiger Woods of guilt, you know. But uh, you know, Q was really, and it really meant so much to me. And there are other people out there that I have. I feel like I have definitely let down when I was going through things in life and I've been I'm working hard to try and make amends with people. But I really appreciated Q giving me the opportunity to sort of um, stay connected and uh, have the opportunity to prove that maybe that was a, a not my typical yeah. reliability or presentation. <laughs> so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But Q, thank you so much for, for joining us. And, and maybe you could... It's pretty open-ended in what direction you'd like to go about your <laughs> your journey, your personal journey. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm I'm just really happy to be here with y'all. You know, we were just kind of 
chopping it up a little bit before we got on the air and you know it's really cool what you guys are doing i've listened to two of your episodes already you know i said to perk i got you i got y'all pegged on my spotify you know so <laughs> nice so that, so that i can hear it and and now that i i put a face to you know bobby's name and stuff like that and we were able to share some laughs while sam was getting coffee man it's it's just uh really cool to be here he's a large man He's uh, he walked in. I'm like, damn, homie, you tall, bro. <laughs> you were tall, and and then I and then I immediately hated yeah. that I said that because I guarantee you that his entire life, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, been like, that wow, you're tall, Bobby. My, <laughs> my entire life, I've been around tall people, man. My there family, <laughs> was a family of giants. There you go. I'm the dwarf in mine. It's a problem. <laughs> um, and yeah, man, I I think uh, you summed up our meeting really well. You know, that was kind of a rocky year of of. of just coaching performance for you but you know you were i'm sure you'll talk about a lot of that stuff honestly on your podcast because you were uh, you're a tremendously open person and it's always been something that i do really respect in you sam is that you're very willing to be open and vulnerable and to share your story and your realities and your failures you know with people in a manner that's not judgmental you know or pejorative like you're trying to trying to bring anybody down with a cloud of guilt you know so um i want you to know man that yeah from a football coaching perspective it wasn't a great performance you know <laughs> that's fine um <clears throat> but there was never any sort of you know bad blood or anything like that um and i got a really good friend out of the deal you know so yeah. i think i really look at it and say like i'm coming out ahead you know that that yeah we had a kind of cruddy three months together but you know we've been We've been down now for four or five years yeah. after that. And now, what, what was the cruddy three months because of coaching, or was it just football? I was. It was hard for me to to be, you know, I was going through a custody fight for my son. Ooh, uh, yeah. right in it too. Yeah, <laughs> like it was, it right, was right in, in it. The, you know, and things are great. Now, you know, now we got. I got him. You know, half the time, and he's happy, and he's got two great homes. But it was like the very beginning of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was not. The most reliable. I also was working for a school. And we're going to talk about schools. I was teaching for a school yeah. that had a habit of promising me one thing and mm-hmm. then not following through. So, like, I was supposed to be getting out at a certain time when I committed to the job to be able to get over there. And instead, uh, they, I'm getting out, you know, yeah. half an hour later, 45 minutes later, so that I'm, like, running over to practice as everybody's coming out onto the field every day. And yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's hard, you know, to be fully focused on that when you've got stuff and, and just um, own personal demons, depression, all that sort of stuff, yeah. you know, was, uh, um, you know, financially was in a terrible place from, you know, lawyers are expensive. Also, I was horrifically underpaid at the school that I yeah. was at. So it was, uh, it was just a bad time, man. And so it was hard for me to be mentally fully focused on everything yeah it goes with coaching and i mean q ran a very very (laughs) tight ship very very tight you know demanding program so yeah i mean it was just kind of like a bunch of different rivers coming together at the same point in time and and Mm -hmm. just for for sam for perk and it was just kind of you know rivers together hence the world that was that was that was (laughs) probably the worst you know that i have been as far as um performance at any job, uh, being able to just focus on it yeah. because of all the things going on in my life, and so it was. Yeah, man. I, I well, yeah. yeah we, we, it was. It was an interesting. It was an interesting fall. I mean, it was an interesting yeah. fall in a lot of ways, man. And and again, like, 
I mean, I talk about this a little bit in my book and we'll talk about it later, you know, but like there was a lot of me that was diving very, very hard into ball for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. So at the time it was much more difficult for me to empathize with somebody who was going through like struggles in their non-professional or their football, non-football life because I was, you know, ostriching for mine in ball, right? By devoting an inordinate amount Absolutely. of time to this job. And so that was part of the like, you know, me being like, come on, man, we all got problems, man. We all got to do this thing. But at the mm -hmm. same point, I'm not fighting for the custody of my kid. Like mm -hmm. I had my own problems and they were big problems, but it wasn't presenting like that. You know what I mean? And so like, Again, I learned from that experience, man. Like, and I think that that's really the one thing I'd love if anybody out there is, you know, a coach or whatever listening to this is, especially if you're a head coach, is, um, you know, empathy is your is your strongest weapon, man, to manage a good staff, <clears throat> and I would say to manage a good set of players and, and and student athletes too, because, you know, if you can't demonstrate to people that you care about them, um, and that you can work to understand what is happening in their life, you're never going to be able to get the best out of them. And that's supposed to be what it is that we're about, right, as coaches. So absolutely, um, that, that to me was a really cool experience yeah. and, and a growth for me. It didn't help that we kept losing until the end of the year. Dude, that was just a rough year. I mean, we could talk about football, but, like, that was a rough year. I mean, there, was some ta there were at least two Division One players on that team. There was a lot of talent on that yeah. team, um, but they were our first. We So we took over when I came to the town I coached in it, I don't know if I'd air it or what. Yeah, I, uh, I was at Belmont, and I inherited a team that had been 1-21 in, in the previous two seasons. A lot of um, room for growth. A lot of room for growth. And, and they had gone 0-11 the season before. Um, and so that class, when Perk got there, had been our first freshman class. So they were the first class that had gone all the way through. And there was some talent there, and they sort of assumed that that was going to be sufficient. Like, we were Q's first class. We're in the new culture. We're decent. And they'd started winning. Now, who was, who was they assumed? Who was they? The, the seniors of that, yeah. of that oh, group had this yeah. assumption that, like, we've been here through this transition for four years. Mm -hmm. we're, the, we're the whole new breed. We're Q's guys. We're this new culture team. Gotcha. But the cohesiveness, the accountability, the work ethic, the stuff that makes teams, yeah. championship teams, or great mm -hmm. teams, you know, mm -hmm. we went six and four, five and six and five the following year, six and four because we dropped a game the year after that, mm -hmm. you know first two consecutive winning records the town had seen in like 20 years or something like that and um you know so we had we had the horses to do the stuff but we just we didn't have that that identity and that willingness to sacrifice for your for your fellow man that's necessary to be a, a great team right um as we saw last night with the boston celtics well there you go talent is not enough it's never enough. It's never enough. It's, and, you know, it's a big part of it. it yep. can be, you can't win without it. It's great in the beginning. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Bobby and I talked about that our last episode. It's, it's going to air soon. We talked about resiliency as a big thing of, of Bobby's, and we were talking about with – Yeah. And, and in the AAU episode, too, before that, where, where we talked about that, you know, how there these kids out there that are very talented for high school players, but that almost none of them are talented enough that they can – all it takes is talent you know people yeah. don't realize in the grand scheme of things till they deal with someone like bobby like bobby was one of the 20 best high school players in the country his senior yep. years, mcdonald's all-american you know and that that they don't realize your greatness even in your region you might be the best player in your freaking region but that there are an awful lot of other kids that you're going to come up against someone that like <laughs> is 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 just going to run you over and yeah. that your talent is not enough to just be like 
oh, yep. yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm the shit. That that like. <sighs> well, you you know when when we look at when we look at the players today and we look at the coaches, I mean, is all their efforts are geared towards improving their talent physically. Yeah. Um, there, there is little to no focus on who they have to become. Yep. You know, mentally, emotionally, and it's always about being tough, tough, tough. No, I mean, one of the things you've got, you actually, you've actually got to be vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy that you say that, and I hate to keep, like, plugging the book, right? Like, there's a whole section. <laughs> is there a book? There is a book. There is a book. It's the only thing you can see. It's a... Uh, it, but it's a there's a whole section about that, you know, about that true strength exists in vulnerability. Mm. You know that you can never be a great team unless you're prepared to be vulnerable to one another. You can never be a great coaching staff unless you're willing to be vulnerable to one another. You know, and the notion that vulnerability is not weakness um, at all. And to be perfectly frank, neither is fear. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's strength exists in accepting your vulnerability and being able to share it and not feel no kind of way about what that does to your sense of self. And as it relates to fear, it's your ability to be afraid and to walk into something into the darkness regardless. And that, you know, this this whole, you know, I talk a lot, especially in football and considering what we're here to talk about today about the relationships with things like toughness and masculinity and manhood and strength and these words that they get thrown into the faces of these young people mm-hmm. over and over and over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And I don't mean this pejoratively, but in many cases by men who don't fully understand what they mean in the first place. You're kidding. No. They're just saying that <laughs> shit. You know why? Because it got said before. And you know why? It got said to those guys before them and it got said to those guys before them. But the willingness to take the time to actually understand what it means to be strong. Meaning. Yeah. Meaning. Meaning. Ah. Depth. Like, yes. And that's what we, in my view, humbly as a society and as a sports society especially, have lost. And we see it in things like the shut up and dribble movement, right? Yeah. Like, oh, don't talk. Just bounce that ball. But mm-hmm. What? No depth, right? So I can show you my strength on a basketball court. I can show you my strength on a football field. I can show you my strength hurtling through the air as a gymnast. But I can't show you my strength with my mind. I can't show you my strength with my spirit or my soul. Nah, bro, you got it twisted. <laughs> and that's that's my reality now. And one of the reasons I'm out of this game is to be able to say things like that mm-hmm. and to not have to worry and loudly and to not have to worry about what my fellow fraternity of coaches here in the great state of Massachusetts necessarily. And I've got some great coaching friends. Don't get me wrong, are going to think of me and say of me personally. Yeah. I don't care. We don't have the time to sit back and relax as a society, as a people, as human beings True. in this place and time. And sport is a vehicle for those messages man that can save us <laughs> so speaking of these coaches what, what what i hear you saying is that you got out of coaching because you didn't want to subscribe to the ideas of the group because once you become part of the group you've probably got to ascribe to their you know subscribe i'm sorry to yeah to their to the culture right yes right exactly so your your i mean your voice is limited yeah i got out of coaching for a lot of reasons man um the first reason was that i I loved the two hours that I spent or two and a half hours on my practice field. I did. I found myself not wanting to do the work that I had been doing and had to do to be a good coach. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I didn't want to be was a bad coach. I, I can't phone anything in, man. I've never been that dude. And I felt myself start to go there for a lot of reasons. You know, I got sick in 2019 yep. and I had cancer. So I had a cancer fight that I coached through. Um, and then I came out, you know, in 2020 and, and as a gay man and, you know, started to process what that was going to mean 
for my life and for my existence. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I left my teaching job partially because of new opportunities and partially because we were coming out of Mike Brown and George Floyd. And I had been preaching in this place for 15 years. And I was just really tired of white teachers in the teacher's lounge snickering when I left after I was preaching about black bodies being dropped on American streets without consequence by the state. And I just couldn't do that in part anymore. Right. So like all of these things were swirling around in me. And at the end of the day, I realized that I had no fucking clue who I was if I wasn't a football coach Mm -hmm. and that it was the entirety of my identity. And it happened before I even knew it. And I'm not judging that because I know a lot of men and good men who have given their entire lives to coaching and that sport. And they've helped thousands of tens of thousands of kids. And and I I respect that for me. You know, I wanted to see another path of existence. Uh, You know, I was 39 at the time um, and I wanted to see another path. You know, there's a there's a line by Thoreau in Walden where he says something along the lines of it was not long before my feet had worn an impressible path down to the waterfront of the pond. You know, and so it is with life that we just Mm -hmm. wander into these ruts and we just travel them. Um, And I traveled that for 17 years as a coach and I, I sacrificed a lot or I wouldn't even say sacrificed. I chose to ignore a lot and a lot of experience that, you know, people should be able to have in their lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> so uh, th- that's interesting that you use the word sacrifice. Okay. So, so when I, when, as a coach and as a mentor, which we've all been coaches, but I think yeah. we've found that the more we do it, the more we start mentoring the kids. Facts. And we're talking about meaning, right? So all these definitions that are given to us, one of the words is sacrifice. You have to sacrifice for what you want. Hmm. Well, one of the things I try to explain to kids is that going after something you want is not a sacrifice. Facts. Okay. Yeah. What you have to do is determine, gain clarity on what you want. Because giving up something that's less, worthless, is never a sacrifice. Yeah, that's the truth. Right? That's it. So, that's 100%. You know, and when I listen to you, we're, we're talking about meaning. So it's the definitions that we ascribe yeah. to those words. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I, I just think it's, it's amazing. I'm loving this. Yeah, man. I mean, I, 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 love, I love that. I think that's a really, it's just a really strong point, man. I think we've become a society that's just like so mutually exclusive. Like, for example, like I had a kid who came to me and he was really timid. He's like, coach, I, like, I want to play football. Big dude, lineman, right? I was mm-hmm. like, I want to play football, but I don't know if I can. Like, I'm in the, and he was like ashamed to say. He's like, I'm in the winter play and I love drama and I also want to play football, but you know, I know I have to be at all practices and, and also for like drama, I got to be mm-hmm. a rehearsal. And I was like, my man, we'll work it out. Life is not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And we exist in this place that, you know, you have to either be this thing or the other, you know. And we saw that, honestly, one of the reasons I left, too, was was uh, I had a really bad taste in my mouth after COVID with the level of advocacy that existed for the restarting of athletics that didn't exist in any way, shape or form for any other extracurricular yeah. that was being affected by COVID. 
there were parents out on street corners like they were protesting segregation to get kids back into hockey rinks, but nobody was doing that for the chess club or the robotics team or band or drama. Mm -hmm. And like I looked at it and said, man, have we gone far afield with what athletics should be to me? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not to say you can't give your life to it because it's dope, (laughs) but it can't be everything and if it is everything any person for whom it is everything i would advise them humbly to ask themselves why because in my instance it was entirely because i didn't want to confront my lived reality Mm. now that might not be true for everybody Mm -hmm. but everybody has a reason because you don't spend 24 hours a day being that passionate about something right. to the point that you're willing to sacrifice things that you do like, mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Without covering something up. Like, what are you hiding in a sense, yes. right? And like yes. that's, and, and that was it. It was like, um, man, especially after I got sick, it was like the scales fell from my eyes and I realized that I, I, almost, uh, I almost went out without ever getting the opportunity to be a fully authentic person you know like people talk about death and mortality a lot and they talk about it in very broad and vague terms um and philosophical terms and there's philosophical death and then Mm -hmm. there's death death Mm -hmm. so when you look at your doctor in the face and you say are you telling me that i might die and he says, well, it's cancer, so I can't tell you no. Right. You mean dead, dead? Yeah, like really dead? Like <laughs> fucking dead, dead? Like Biggie and Pac dead? Like fuck, man. And you're forced to think about that. Like there's no other way. You got to look at it. You got to. And I asked myself if, all right, man, if this is it, if this dude say, you know, I go back for my next round and he say six months, mm-hmm. am I satisfied? Am I satisfied? And my answer unequivocally was no. Mm-hmm. So I was like, fuck that. Immediately, it, was, it was crazy, man. I was like, fuck that. There's not a chance that I'm going to allow, even if it's six months, even if it's a year, even if it's two years, even if it's five years, and my prognosis is good. So I'm like, let's go. Act two, same verse, better than the first. Like, there's no way that I'm going to spend another minute living in complete and total fear, um, just complete repression of self, depression as a result of that. Um, and in the three years since I've come out um, (laughs) it's it's I used to have a dream regularly a stress dream when I'd fall asleep and in my dream I'd be accused of a crime that I didn't commit Mm -hmm. and I would go through a trial uh, and like you know vividly in my dream I go through the trial and then I would get convicted of this crime and I get sentenced almost every time to 40 years Right. And the dream always ended getting took back to lockup, getting like the whole fucking process, like loaded in the van, took the state, loaded out, intake, in you go, door closes. And I'm in this cell trying to figure out what I'm going to do for the next 40 years of my life in this fucking dungeon. Mm -hmm. Right. Of American retributive justice or whatever, you know, and um, and the dream would always end with me falling asleep on my cot in my cell that first night. And then I would wake up in my bedroom at home in Medford and I immediately would be like fucking panicked because yeah. it's dark and I, yeah. I, I feel like I'm still there. And then like ESPN would be on or something. I'd be like, oh, thank God they don't have ESPN. Right, right, right. Oh, my God. Right. I haven't had that dream since I came out of the closet. So not once. I used to have that dream twice a month. So when was the moment? Because I'm, I'm guessing this is what happened. When was the moment where you just said, fuck it? 
because with with cancer, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking, oh my gosh, and then <laughs> you got to come out. So my experience. So my grandmother died in my arms. Wow. Okay. So my mom. Wow. My my uh, my mom died in my uncle's arms. So I'm named after my uncle, you know, yeah. after the man who my yep. mother, you know, whose arms she died in. Wow. So I'm I'm sitting there with my grandmother and I hear her take her last breath. All right. She's in my arms and I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh." And my grandmother was a she was full of drama, okay? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, she did this shit on purpose. <laughs> she <laughs> Just because right? this is my it. baby, yeah. you know what? I'm going out with you. <laughs> yeah, right? so yep. I go home and I, I get home from Europe, and I go and uh, you know, we get her. We get her out of the the uh, the home where my aunt has put her, and my aunt who actually also died of cancer. She died of, died of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yep. yep. So and this was a couple of years ago, but anyway, like I said, my grandmother passes away in my arms, and I'm thinking to myself. I wish, because I watched her struggle, and I'm saying to myself, I wish she would hurry up and die. Yeah. You know? And I felt bad for saying it, but you know, on this podcast, what we're trying to do is is be real about yeah. it. Yeah. I've got this feeling that, you know what? No, she's got to go. Yeah, it's time. Because she is suffering. And, but that wasn't it. It was that I felt as though that this will be a burden lifted off of me. <laughs> You know, yeah. and I'm thinking, what the hell am I, why am I thinking this? But it's real. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's real. And it's, 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 it's acceptable, man. You know, I, uh, my mom was the primary caregiver for both of her parents on their mm. way out, you know, and mm. I was around her, but I wasn't the primary, you mm. know, but she, she was mm. like every day, every night, day in and day out. And, um, I loved my grandma and my grandpa, uh, a lot. I mean, you know, my grandpa was my dad in a lot of ways, you know, was my real positive male figure in my life. And mm -hmm. my grandma is the reason I write as well as I do, because she was a poet and a mm -hmm. great one. And yeah, um, it was murdering my mother. And I could just see it eat away. And um, I wasn't happy for the loss, obviously. But yeah, man, I was really happy that my mom didn't have to do that anymore and that my grandmother wasn't living a life that she would have spit on like she wouldn't have wanted it you know she was active and she vibrant and loud and tough oh, and all that I shit right yes yeah. i and know like, her. i know her you know her, right <laughs> and like she just didn't want any part of that yeah she would have wanted out you mm -hmm. know what i mean so like i we we're we're conditioned to feel guilt connected to loss especially like for us all of us have like this kind of papa bear vibe you know of like protector yeah you know mm -hmm. and you guys are dads yeah mm -hmm. so like that double that you know with that sense of protection and the guilt that you feel is that you're not able to protect somebody in that moment that you love you know and it's the acceptance of that reality and of that fact man that you know to me is is super freeing in a lot of ways because like <laughs> i wrote a song the, a while ago on the back end of an album it's called one way ride you know and it's it's just about that like dude this is a one this is this is it and I used to say to kids, there's no rewind button, man. Mm -hmm. The only commodity that is constantly reducing is time. You can make more money. You can buy a nice house. Mm -hmm. You can marry a beautiful person. You can do whatever you want. But you ain't never, you know, you, <laughs> you know you're never going to find more time. Like, it's always going downhill. So, 
yeah, man, I think that like we feel that sense of guilt that we can't protect somebody that we're unable to give them time. We're unable to give them the gift of life. Um, and it's the one thing we want to give to people more than anything else. And that's the grand irony of being human. You know, yeah. you're aware of the fact no other, no other animal in the world has this problem from the time you're 25 on you're aware mm -hmm. that it's ticking mm -hmm. and you, you, you have to be aware of that. Or you're just, I mean, I say there, man, I wish I also was completely ignorant of that. It would be super nice to not have to have to think about that. But also yeah. that's given me everything, yeah. bro. Yeah. Like that mortality and that recognition of my mortality has given me my life and my yeah. freedom. Stephen, so. Stephen Covey wrote um, about that in his book, First Things First. Yeah, the I've read between, snippets of that. Right, the clock and the compass. Right, so it's it sounds like uh, I like you, that. you found your compass. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's great. Compass. I'm yeah. writing that shit down. <laughs> hey, this is Stephen Covey. This wasn't me. <laughs> Stephen Covey. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> Shout so, out. Because <laughs> you know, I want to get into um, your decisions to to walk away and, and sure. coming out and, sure. and 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 that kind of. I think it feels like finally prioritizing what was what you realized was important to you which is being your genuine self and being true to yourself yeah how what did football mean to you throughout your life before you reached that place what was your relationship like with the sport that's a really tough question and i've been striving to answer for five years right uh in some senses it was like having a in some senses, it was like having a. You want the like the good or the bad first. Uh, it doesn't matter. Whatever. You got to you got to pick. You got to help me out. Give me uh, the bad. You want the, the you bad. want the bad. In some senses, it was like, it was like running with a with a partner doing drugs. Like it was like an it was there was like a, a codependency addiction behavior. You know, it's like it was like two addicts living in the same space at the same time, like helping each other use in a way, right? Um, and so my relationship with football uh, was. <laughs> So double, it was so double edged because the bad was that it was ridiculously toxic. Um, you know, I probably knew that I was gay. I really knew that I was gay in my early twenties, but I had an idea in my teens, you know, and throughout all of that process, football became my definer of masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, it became my beard because no self-respecting gay man would put himself in this bastion of homophobia, which it absolutely is. Okay. Football. Um, football, yes. specifically, yeah. but American male sport generally. Okay. Um, but there are others that are better at it, you know, at accepting the realities of human existence than football. And there's such a connection of strength and masculinity so like these were all of my definers you know i graduated from high school in 2000 in 1999 matt shepherd was chained to a wyoming fence beaten to death by a couple of rednecks and left to die and that was on the front page of every paper so my inclinations of being gay um <laughs> you know were like well fuck being gay means i'm gonna get identified and outed i'm not gonna get any of the things that i want in my life which at the time was the family that I never got to really have in my own life. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to get outed and everything's going to come crashing down or somebody's going to fuck me up or beat me or whatever. And not that I can't defend myself, but who wants that? And football was just kind of this place where like nobody would assume that that was who I was because why would I be there if, mm -hmm. if that's who I was? 
you know, and I kind of fell into that more coaching. And then it became this projection of life. So like I call it in the book, I call it Rockwell, like a Rockwell painting. You know, the sense of Americana that I wanted, man, from a sexual orientation standpoint, from a wealth standpoint, from a mm. racial standpoint. Mm. I mean, man, like it felt like every piece of who I was was insufficient to my country and to my society. But that this thing gave me a pass, mm. right? And like I could go into this place, I could be dominant. I could be the dominant. I could be Stanley Kowalski. I could be the gaudy seed bearer. And I watched men that I emulated and respected and loved and loved to this day, mm -hmm. you know, demonstrate those behaviors for me um, as a young man, as a young coach. And I wanted that. I wanted the family running out to greet you at half field after, mm -hmm. the, after the game was over. I wanted, you know, I wanted that. I wanted that convention. And then I knew I couldn't have it. So, so um, that really is the dark side of it. You know, it was, it was this place where I could completely hide myself and cover myself. And then at the same time, the culture of the sport was presenting itself to me in a manner that it was increasing my distaste for myself. Man, I, I have not... I, I haven't gone into that much depth in thinking about it like that, but you know, when I when I think of my own childhood, so you you had mentioned the young football player who was who wanted to uh, participate in a school play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So I grew up in the Atlantic City Children's Theater. Cool. So the my heroes at that time were Nikki Giovanni, Paul, <laughs> poetical Lawrence, black Dunbar, female. Yes, yes, exactly. man. Langston Hughes, oh. James Baldwin. Oh, my favorite. Okay? My favorite. So. These are the people. So basketball never meant as much to me as those heroes yeah. meant to me. I mean, I could watch Dr. J and Rose Malone, and these guys all the time, but they never meant more to me than those figures that I had I had grew up with. I'm reading their books. Yeah. I'm reading their, their biographies, their autobiographies, you know, and I'm, I'm watching them develop these stories out of an America that was totally different. Yeah. Right. So. When I hear you, when I hear you speak about your experiences, you know, a lot of the kids now are, and I'm, I'm asking this because, you know, I didn't feel as though uh, I was always told, no, you got to, you got to be hard, you got to be tough, you got to be tough. Mm -hmm. So I start lifting weights. Yep. And I had never wanted to hurt anybody <laughs> in the basketball field, but when you get out there. And you're playing against guys like Charles Oakley or, you know, or somebody <laughs> yeah. like that, right? You better muscle up. <laughs> right. You've got to protect yourself. And, um, you know, and for me, for me to stand out, I had to become physically stronger. Yeah. Yep. But what lacked was my emotional strength, right? When to actually fight or when yep. to start a fight, when to hold back. Yep. You know, I didn't understand how to do that. Everything they asked me to do had to do with physicality. Yep. You know, nothing that I, I wasn't rage. helped with. Yes, rage. I was never helped with the emotional part of the game. Football is crazy like that, man. They, it, it, it does prey on traumatic rage. Yep. And um, it's really interesting. So. I had a conversation, again, uh, this is like a broken record. I'm writing this story, right? And it's it's been a process, like, to go, you know, 20 years back in my life and put yeah. myself there. But in the in the con course of doing this, mm -hmm. um, I called up one of, <laughs> I will call him 
Richard, right? Um, Pryor? No, man, no? that okay. would be dope. <laughs> <laughs> Can I call him? <laughs> we got some shit to talk about, bro. <laughs> um, no, I, I call Rich up, and and Rich is gay. He's from uh, the state of Michigan. Um, he was a highly touted defensive lineman prospect. He's mm-hmm. from Detroit, white Detroit white boy. Mm-hmm. So that is always an interesting vibe. <laughs> um, you know, six foot three, three hundred and twenty pounds, which is brick shit house. Oh, know, yeah. Tattoos up and down, like blah 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 blah. And you know, he's he's he came out at nineteen, mm. right? Because uh, he only because he lost football because he. Mm essentially broke his back, had to have back surgery, lost his scully, fell into depression and drugs at at Michigan State for his first year, came home, got in trouble, blah, blah, blah. When he talks about sport, he talks about it became this place where my rage could just consume me and take over and that people trumpeted that and they triumphed that Mm -hmm. and they told me that I was a great football player and they told me that I was a great hockey player because of it. And then I asked him, well, what were you so mad about? And without missing a beat and without an ounce of pretense, he goes, I knew I was gay, man, and I fucking hated it. Mm. So now you think about what it does in somebody's mind to know that you are something, hate it so much that you're angry at the world, at yourself, at your fucking parents, at God, at whoever the fuck it is that put you Mm -hmm. in this predicament. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the fact that there are people telling you that you're choosing this shit for yourself, like it's something that you would just create for yourself. And to feel that way about it, to the point that you're so angry that you're good at fucking people up, and then have an authority figure from an educational standpoint say, Great job, buddy. I was a decent football player and not good or great by any means, but the only thing that made me decent at it at all was that I was fucking tapped. And I was tapped because I hated my dad and I hated who I was. And that made me good. Is that positive? Is that a positive development in my life? Would I say that athletics positively influenced me? Yeah. Would I say that it handicapped me tremendously as well? Absolutely. And the unwillingness of American sport to even have a fucking conversation about it, really have a conversation about it, is what scares me. I would say, and you made me think about it, that one of the other things that I didn't talk about, and I never talked about it to you because, to be honest, I was already in a bad place when I I had, by the time that, that, that training camp had started and I knew the road that I was going down there, and... As sad as it is, I really needed that stipend at that time with, I'm with, it. with, with illegal stuff. But I had come to the place in my life um, that year that I was this, uh, working for you where I had realized at that point how messed up our society, how warped it was around our sport culture, our athletic culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone that, that loved sports, that, that playing it Me too. Was, was, was everything – after my own career was over, writing about it, covering, staying connected, you know, and I still see the beauty in sport when I go out there and I shoot it and I'm behind the camera. But we, from a, we do not prepare our athletes from youth, certainly when they get to high school, college, professionally, we do not prepare them, one, for life after sport. Yeah, which we is don't a huge teach people problem. how to turn it off. Nope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't. They're, they're, they should be spending billions on mental health professionals, on trauma work for all the for athletes at all levels. Yep. 
because a lot of the great ones have trauma in their yeah. backgrounds or they become traumatized That's from right. sport. And we don't prepare them for how do you turn it off when you go out into society because you cannot behave in the everyday world the way you do <laughs> on a football field or really? a court. And we also, like, we, we, we don't. We do not have any sort of ego checks. You, no. At every level, talking about from the youth level on, I can still remember clear as day kids that I played Little League or, you know, peewee football or, or you know, youth league basketball in, in elementary school, man, that there were people in the community, there were coaches that, that were telling them, like, you're going to be someone in this sport, you know? Yeah. Like, I remember the kid that that and and, and I'm not I've told the story to as, different as people as opposed but, to being someone at that particular point in time. Point in time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you're, you're great that, or how about just be a person, yeah, man? Yeah, like, you're like, like you're a great player right now, but they're like you're gonna be you're gonna yeah. be a major. Like this kid that was uh, in little league. He was one of those kids that, like, when we were when when, when he was eleven, he was like five six, 170 yeah. pounds, yeah. Mm-hmm. and he hit like twenty seven home runs. Yeah, I still remember in little league. And like people were telling, we're like, "Hey, he's gonna be a, ma- you're gonna be a major leaguer yeah. to him." That he's kid, five eight now. When we, no, when we were, when we were, <laughs> when we were, when we were, sen- when we were seniors in high school. No, no joke. He was the same size. Yeah, he was still five, because- he was still five seven, one hundred and seventy pounds. Weird, Sam. Didn't it's really, almost like really, you're saying yeah. that you can't predict. No, you can't future predict at all. Events pre puberty. You can't at all. But like, Weird. didn't hit a single home run. And like I, his identity. I think was so tied up in sport yeah. that, and in that, it's like I don't know how you deal. And we do that at all levels with these kids, where we're like, "You are, you walk on water because you're good at what you do right now." And at some point, either you're not going to be good enough anymore because the level of eliteness to be able to do that for your profession is is it's we're talking about it's it's point zero 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 one percent of people right. that you can be phenomenal amazing high school player and you never get paid a cent to play that sport yep. as a profession yep. and even then on top of it you have injuries you have right. all sorts There's of a shelf stuff life that yeah. happens yeah. So, what next and it's like we do not prepare the, the we don't have these ego checks for kids to be like you know the, you got to be humble you have to have things that you want to do outside of the sport and so by the time i got there to 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 being an assistant with you, I was already really at a like, yeah. man, there's a lot about sport culture that is really, I just cannot fake it anymore. I mean, I think like, I think one of the big pieces too, man, and, and you're touching on it, is that Americans love to try and act as though sport is this like... Everything. Well, that, but also this bubble of release, like, and it's, you know, oh, this is this place where... The problems of America don't seep in. Just I, you know, I used to have coaches. You know, they tweet it, and they're like, you know, America could take some lessons from a football locker room where everybody works together. And I'm like, for real? Like, we really want to have some conversations. Have you ever been in a about room? the con- also about the conversations that are happening in the football locker yeah. room? Because when Mike Brown hit the dirt, the same conversations yeah. that were happening on the street were happening mm-hmm. downstairs from our coach's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or 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 you're having in the in the locker rooms you're having. Like a super fragmented, segregated. Yeah, it's all you know, click, clicked it, out. It's clicked out. You're having oh, we could learn a lot. How many fist fights have I seen right? in a locker like, room? Between all of that stuff goes dumb, on. Ignorant stuff. But that- it's, it's, okay, so now I mean that that's a serious topic, right? Yeah. Huge. So if you, if if you were going, if we're going to broach that conversation, then you got to talk about the coaches that are actually in the locker rooms. Facts. Yeah. These motherfuckers don't want to pr- approach the subject. Yeah. Why? Because most of them 
and I'm guessing, all right? I'm, I'm guessing. Please, someone tell me if I'm wrong. But most of them are white coaches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's no, right. well, they're huge, white straight men. Yes. Huge problem. So you don't Especially have in football. Especially yeah. in football, right? Especially in football. So how do you have that conversation? You are scared to death, all right, to have that conversation mm-hmm. against, what, a 70% uh, black team? Yeah. yeah. Right? You're not going to have that conversation. No. Nor are you qualified to have that no, conversation. No, and that's, and that's one of the big things. I tweeted the other day, let's normalize not being an expert in everything, yeah. right? It's one of those big things in, like, opinionated expert culture, right, mm-hmm. is that everybody gets to be a fucking expert in, ev- in everything, right. you know? And, and so, like, you know, one of the things that I've, it's crazy, man. I've offered this to a bunch of coaches. Nobody's taking me up on it is the opportunity. Cause like, I kind of am a professional at talking about diversity and social equity and athletic context. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Hey, I'd love to come in and do something with your team during camp. Mm-hmm. There's not a, a huge interest in that Crickets. again, because <laughs> we have chosen to view sport as an escape from society, as opposed to a reflection of it, as opposed to an extension of it, or mm-hmm. just society I, itself. I, I agree. Like we don't. Nobody that is in a position of authority. So one, yes, it's, it is a massive problem, especially football and basketball along racial lines. Baseball too, although mm-hmm. it's more uh, baseball along like you know having it's racial, but it's also to, to the lack of Latino coaches in yeah. baseball. When you For look real. at such right. a large when right. when you have such a big percentage of a sport being played by people of a certain racial demographic, and the coaching doesn't reflect that. It is a problem. It but, is a big problem. But that's, I mean, we could sit here for the next 327 yeah. years and dissect that because that is the functionality of America from an economic, social, and political standpoint. You know, there's that kind of meme that's been circulating that's like when corporations talk about diversity, this is what they mean. And it's like a white man, two white men, three white men, yeah. two white ladies, three white men. And mm-hmm. then the last row of management, lower management, mm-hmm. we've got some black faces, mm-hmm. black women, and, brown faces, yeah, and, gays, and, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and what I was kind of getting at there is that, but even the people at the top that are not, they don't, they just want to insulate themselves. They don't want to even get help better understanding something. So my, my wife... Yeah. Uh, my wife is a is is a um, she she's a therapist. She's done it for a really long time. She specializes in trauma and consent and stuff like that, and doing trauma work, working yeah. with survivors. And I've I've reached out because I have a lot of contacts, people that I considered friends, people I think are friends. That you know, you reach out in the college coaching ranks of you know. Look, my wife is is a very dynamic, compelling, engaging, funny presenter and extremely knowledgeable on this what we're, she's starting to put together yeah, for, do for, for her practice she's putting together these in services um about things like consent about things like healthy because a lot of people don't understand consent and this is a topic f- to explore i want to get my wife on the podcast Absolutely. you know as, as yeah. it might be whatever but she, but um Ooh, but, but 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 <laughs> <laughs> but 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 things 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 like things like consent are so important for high schools for colleges athletes both male and female to understand to understand that like you know that things are not that 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 just because it isn't someone grabbing a stranger off the street and whatever that doesn't mean that that something going on is consensual and there are big problems. There's lots of school. The University of Vermont has a huge issue going on with all these protests up there and accusations about the school in general, but with the athletic department, different teams specific. Uh, there was Title IX lawsuit. Um, and just using that as an example, it's a problem across athletics. And, and we're saying, like, you guys, you have to do in-services anyways. It's they do the same generic ones. This is someone that could actually 
relate to your kids, yeah. can resonate. And mm-hmm. it's like crickets in response because no one wants to change these problems. They just want to kick the can down the road to the till they can retire and may have it someone else's problem. No one actually wants to be like, hey, maybe we can actually curtail sexual violence yeah. among our student athletes. And, and in addition to that, man, and this is something else that I wrote in a in an article years ago that was called uh, Six Years to George Floyd. That's about the six years between Mike Brown mm-hmm. and George Floyd's death. Mm-hmm. Six, um, number yeah. of creation. Gotcha. Yeah, there it is. Threes and, threes and sixes, Yeah, yeah, bro. yeah, yeah. There no, you go. I'm with you. Tesla, Tesla numbers and shit. Yeah. That's my conspiracy theory friend got me into that stuff. No. Um, and I totally lost my train of thought. I got on the six. Oh, six years to George Floyd. And, like, I came to this kind of realization, and, uh, like, we're a reactive society, A. So, like, you know, something happens, things get hot, Twitter and social media goes off for three weeks and then it's gone. And I kind of came to this realization about why white America wasn't as disgusted by the extrajudicial murder of black men by agents of the state Mm -hmm. under the banner of the constitution, Mm -hmm. which is what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. Or what was happening and is happening and continues to happen and has always happened in this country. And I was like, why are they not incensed about this at all? It's a, it's insulting to the constitution. It's insulting to the flag. It's insulting to America. And the reason is, is that it doesn't affect their day to day life. Right. Right. It's not somebody who looks like their family Mm -hmm. dead on the street left there for a community to see over and over and over again. And you can, a time to kill it. Right. Like you close your eyes now imagine that body is white mm-hmm. now imagine it's a little white boy mm-hmm. that got shot on the cleveland playground because he had a toy gun and imagine what america's response to that white boy being shot for having a toy gun right uh there would be the second amendment people would be up white well, that, that's exactly and that's the and that's the but that's the reactiveness and the reactiveness exists in the notion that this is the other this is something that doesn't affect me i don't have to live with it i don't have to see it it has been the balm the solve of white america's collective moneyed guilt and white people often get very especially my friends get very angry at me when i speak about white people or straight people as a monolith and they're Mm -hmm. like we're not all the same yeah we're not all the same i'm like i get it man i ain't speaking to you specifically like man like the fragility of even having the conversation And that goes in, in some senses for straight men as well, right? Is like, man, the fragility of even having these conversations. It's like my very fucking existence and the fact that I have thoughts and words somehow takes away from your agency. Man, power is not pie. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. to stop acting like it is because mm-hmm. as long as we're acting like it is, man, as long as we're acting like it is, we will always war. Right? And, and that's it. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you just using that example of of these people uh, you know black and brown people being killed by the state for 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 things that do are not <laughs> punishable by death and that the state does not Without have trial. that does not have it's not supposed to by law have that authority to like oh you're looking suspicious oh you have a bb gun on the on the playground we're not even going to give you a warning can we're i can i just interject just, i'm sorry yeah. can i also interject that the same people who are saying that are the same people who are also advocating to stockpile weapons that's, to protect against the tyrannical government yes that's what i was getting that's, that's what i was <laughs> is that is that the demographic the it's, it's to yes. me what's crazy is yes. the demographic that is largely white conservative that is on one hand every time a black or brown person is killed, even when they're unarmed, when they're complying, when they're everything. They said nothing on um, 
the guy in Minnesota. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Philando Castile. Yes, Philando Castile, who was a a legal <laughs> licensed licensed gun owner mm-hmm. who told the police officer, "I'm armed." I'm, yeah, he did I'm armed right because yeah. and he was getting his wallet and he gets killed and they're not, once again not convicted. The, the police officer. No. Nope. No, crickets about that. A legal gun owner who is licensed and is shot for for nothing. And every time that a black or brown, uh, the, the kid in Cleveland who had a BB gun, who they didn't even give a warning to. and Tamir the police, Rice. Tamir Rice. The, 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 the police report totally filled with lies when you look up the video, the amount of time they said we gave him a warning. We gave, and, and it's nothing or it's you just should have complied. I mean, you it's ju- the broad you, question, you, too, right? Like these things are happening now with and we're getting far afield yeah. in the topic of racial justice. But these things are happening now with the power of the citizen journalist. And what I say to it, like, so I do in services sometimes for schools on mm-hmm. the issue of race and my specific speech talk is on, on the notion of white complicity, mm. which is that in order for America to address its issue with race, specifically with race, white America has to own, including good white people, that they are complicit, right? America wants truth and reconciliation without telling the truth. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to own doesn't want accountability and we're we're coaches the first step to owning to 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 progression and growth is accountability of reality right and so like you know we're we're having these conversations about what it is that people can do in order to make moves in the right direction man and it starts with an acceptance that this is not a, this is not a broken system. This is the system working exactly as it was designed to work. So that's the first thing I want to say. If, and if I was Christian, I would say amen. Amen. <laughs> say it anyway. And B, that the specific of, I get into this a lot, the specific of, of the murder of citizens by the cops with guns is but one piece one tiny piece mm-hmm. we're not even talking about plea arrangements we're not yeah. even talking about you know if you're a black man you're more likely to be stopped you're more likely to be searched when you're stopped you're more likely to be removed from your vehicle when you're stopped you're more mm-hmm. likely to be cuffed when you're stopped you're more likely to be physically assaulted when you're stopped you're more likely to be detained when you're stopped if mm-hmm. you're detained you're more likely to be detained de- yeah. be detained for longer than a white person detained for the same crime you're more likely to be charged if charged you're more likely to receive a higher bail or no bail. You're more likely to be convicted. And when convicted, your sentences are 20% longer than white people convicted of the same crimes. Then you serve on average over 20% longer of your sentences before parole, more likely to be rejected by first parole, and less likely to be employed five years after your release, more likely to be back in jail by ridiculous percentages. So if we really want to have this conversation about whether or not this thing actually fucking exists, which for some reason we're still talking about, like like it's a debate, I don't understand. Every single number and measurable about American society tells us that American society is racist, that it's systemically racist, and it has been systemically racist for hundreds of years. That's like me being like, oh, I have these two tumors in my I neck, mean, but they're not I there. Mean, that, that, that's so a couple of things. One, and it starts at the school level, and you yeah. see it when you see it when you're teaching. And it, to me, it's crazy where every statistic shows us that at a minimum, black and white kids, youth, minors, we'll say, use drugs at the same rate. <laughs> Anecdotally, white kids use them 
uh, much more. You see it in the suburbs. The like just more growing, money, more drugs. Growing up, right? No, I, I I grew up in, more money, in more drugs. I grew up in a city, a very racially mixed city. My high school was huge, and it was very very racially mixed. It was like thirty five percent white, forty percent black, and then you know the rest was was other racial demographics. And the ki- all the kids that I knew that were the were the drug users, overwhelmingly white. The kids that were arrested for drugs were overwhelming. Were, were all black. I never knew a white kid that was arrested for for drugs growing up. And we see it in arrest rates Facts. that that bare minimum white white youth and black youth use drugs at the same rate. It's really probably significantly more. But black youth are the ones that are arrested mm-hmm. at uh, insanely higher rates. And once you get in the system as a kid, it's over. it's over. And so we, we, we don't even want to acknowledge that. And then when you said, when you talked about- We're not rehabilitative. About, We're not about it. About American society being, you know, I can never understand, like it blows my mind and I can't even at this point have a conversation where if people are like, America was founded on racism and people are like, no, it wasn't. How do you say it wasn't when at the country's founding- Slavery, race-based slavery, not only existed, but it was the cornerstone of the economy. And that, how do you say it wasn't founded on racism when every law on the books specified that that black people were not let's, humans? Let's let's add to that the that color the, of law. Yeah, yeah, the color of law. Let's add to that also that the Constitution of the United States of America, at the time of its writing, in the body of the Constitution, ascribed black. They put a number. To what black life was worth in comparison to white life, and that number was three fifths. Yeah, three fifths. Right. Yep. That that if for the purposes of representation, black citizens will count as three fifths of a white man. So how how do you have that, and then have the the ignorance and audacity to claim that America wasn't founded because on it's 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 like it's the it, it is an inability to translate societal realities and to separate them from individual realities. So, you know, I have this conversation a lot, obviously lots of people have about privilege, you know, and like these conceptions of white privilege and why it is that we even have to have a conception. Mm -hmm. Like for me, it's not hard. Like I'm a dude. I have a penis as a result of being a dude, although I, you know, I want to be really, really clear that trans identity is a thing and that trans people and trans rights in America is a fucking issue. I've found and met a lot of people in the trans community in the last four or five years i've learned so much and i have so much Mm -hmm. more to learn about trans identity but you know and it's not hard for me to say like i have a penis i identify as like a cis presenting man um and as a result of that like i receive a number of fucking benefits you know like for example when i leave a bar at two Mm o'clock in the morning i am not worried Mm mm-hmm I'm mm-hmm. not looking at where the nearest blue phone is. I had a client of mine, a female client, tell me when we were still working out of Boston. She goes, you know, something, we were talking about this, and she goes, another example, maybe in like a three-quarter mile radius, I know every good bathroom that I can go to, like, mm-hmm. take care of myself. Right. That I need, you know, should I need to, right? And, um, but I don't know that because I can just yeah. go find an alleyway. And, That's right piss and like that is the definition of privilege there are a lot of things in my life that have made it fucking hard and it's been a hard life i'm lucky to be here sitting here with y'all and talking and that's a fucking fact it it wasn't always a foregone conclusion but one thing that hasn't made my life harder is my penis Mm -hmm. that has made my life easier in american society hands down right it's not fucking hard but it's the inability of people to separate the social realities from these individual realities. And what they choose to hear, and this is a choice, is 
You're telling me that my life wasn't hard. You're yes. telling me that my struggles aren't real, yes. that they don't amount to anything. And that's not at all what anybody is saying to anybody. We're just yeah. saying that those struggles were not magnified by this thing, whether it's mm. being black, being gay, being a woman, being mm-hmm. trans, being Asian, being yeah. Latino. It's okay mm-hmm. to say that. And white, straight men, I'm sorry that you fall into a demographic where yeah, I mean, it, nothing it, about who you are from a, from a racial, ethnic, or sexual identity standpoint <laughs> makes your life difficult. But there are lots of other things in America that make your life make hard. Your life <laughs> yes, yeah, and that, that's something that when I was like, like in high school, I didn't get. I, I would probably, I mean, I don't think that the term white privilege even existed when I was in high school, but um, but uh, but I would have a hard time with that. Like, well, what do you, you're saying that white people don't 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 yeah. struggle, but but now I totally get it. Look, I've been through a lot. I've buried an awful lot of people. I dealt with a life threatening illness. I went through you know all kinds of stuff uh, that that was very difficult, you know. But none of those difficulties and struggles and and if, you know financial hardships or poverty or anything mm-hmm. was because I was white or was a guy. Now being white and being a guy didn't protect me from other things. Nope. So no, and no one's saying that. It's not a magic but, it, but armor. It's, but it's not. But it, Although, they didn't cause those yeah. things, and that's something that people really struggle with. It's um, just hard, man. It's 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 hard to. I think it's just really really hard, and it it goes back to something that Bobby was talking about, and Sam, you too, in sport, which was you know notions of humility, um, and. That's really a big issue, especially as we individualize more and more. Like, we have always been a society that was founded on the rights of the individual, right? From the principles of liberalism and liberal mm-hmm. democracy, mm-hmm. that's what that's what matters and that's right. important. And as we've grown over 300 almost years, society, American society, has become increasingly about the individual in government representation, sure, but just in, like, cultural society. And so, you know, like... This thing tells me that I'm important constantly <laughs> and I get little dopamine hits mm-hmm. when somebody likes my Instagram mm-hmm. post. Yeah. Right. Dope. And like true dope fiends, true dope fiends <laughs> definition. And that makes it, it it murders empathy. It does. It destroys the ability to see interconnectivity between life and you stay in your box and you stay in yours and I'll stay the fucking mine. And don't you come in here unless we're exactly the same and your box looks exactly like my box. So that, that's one of the issues in sports, right? If, if we bring this Let's back bring it to back. sports. So, <laughs> so now you are, you are presenting kids a culture, yeah. a culture that's not real. All right. It's relevant. But it's not, not real, real because there's so much more behind the scenes, right? So what what do the kids do? They end up spending more time enamored with the bright lights and the bling and everything else with the the ball is life shit, yep. right? Yep. Ball ain't life. Life oh, is life. Life is life. So instead of figuring out and and and, and, and what they're doing, they're being they're being subjected to the culture of the lights, yep. and and they fail. Right? They can go their entire lives without figuring out and admiring the light within themselves. Yeah. So, dude, like you said, this is working the exact way it's, it's supposed, supposed to, to work. Yeah. So, if we're gonna have conversations with young adults and children then you know what? They are much more resourceful than we give them credit for. Yeah. Have the fucking conversation. It's the, and I'm with that, man. Like, you know, I say all the time, the youth is the truth, you know? And like, 
it it is in a lot of in a lot of places. It's adults who are unwilling to have the conversation, yeah. who are carrying over that reluctance from generations past. This mm. is some shit we don't talk about. Mm. And just for the record, like the '90s fucked us over with that. <laughs> Me and Sam are children of this yeah. generation, where we were the Benetton generation. You know, we're the generation where, like, look, Martin Luther King fought for racism, and then he was shot, and then Malcolm X mm-hmm. was shot, and then the mm-hmm. Civil Rights Bill was signed, mm-hmm. and Rosa Parks sat at the front <laughs> of the bus. And look, racism is over. Yeah. And yeah. look at all of us loving yeah. hip-hop and wearing yeah. dashikis and shit, yeah. and we're holding hands. <laughs> oh, Literally, yeah. this was the fucking yeah. 90s. Like, yeah. and look, or me Will, wearing boss Will Smith <laughs> is on TV. How can racism be a thing? There's the Fresh Prince. You, Sam's right. wearing boss, bro. Right. Like, racism right. is dead. And we got, we got inundated with that. Now that generation is 40 years old and the resurgence of neoconservatism and white pride and power, mm-hmm. right? This notion of reclaiming white identity that's being mm-hmm. taken from them somehow mm-hmm. mysteriously. Mm-hmm. I still don't understand how that's possible, yeah. right? That is, is a product of that generation, yeah. both as a backlash and on our side, for, for, we relaxed. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we just were like, oh, it's over. It's, it's dead. over. You know? I when you talked about identity, it's interesting because I think about my own because I think back on my playing career a lot, but I don't think about higher level stuff. I'll I'll think about high school. I'll think about and I, I think back very fondly on on that time in my life. But then there was a long time after when I was still an athlete, but I was like an empty shell. My best friend had taken yeah. his life, my dad had gotten killed, and I was just lost. And, and, and lost in depression and sadness and just a, a fog. And I still, for years and years and years, was an athlete. But when that came to an end, like, it took me a very long time to figure out my identity because that was all that I identified as up until – even when I was miserable playing, yeah. I still identified as an athlete. And it so, took me a very long time to start figuring out who the hell I was afterwards. Yeah. Okay, so – to go deeper into this conversation because we're talking to young athletes, we may be talking to yeah. you know, people who haven't figured out who they are yet. And that's a very it's long huge. process. It, it, it's a lifetime to figure yes. out who you actually yes. are, right? Because it constantly changes. Yes. Can we can we just but, can we just double on that real please, quick? Please, yes. No, very quickly <laughs> that like I, I that was the dope one of the dopest things you said today because like we have this notion like at eighteen you're supposed to have figured it all out. No, God, no. <laughs> exactly. Like what the fuck? I was a Man, dummy please, at eighteen. Please. Dumb as well. <laughs> so, so it leads me to say, well, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, I believe the children are the future. Teach them well, let them read it. Bullshit. They don't know shit. <laughs> you don't know anything. So it's up to individuals who actually sit down and think about the consequences of actions. Yeah to try their best to sit down and, and, and relay our, our, our thoughts with the youth, right? Yeah. But what I want to say is, is if we're talking about identity, we're born into identities, right? Yeah. I'm Jewish, right? So what, and it, it, that's always been a problem of mine. I'm like, wait a minute, because what I hear when I hear, when I hear Jewish is, okay, well, they're the chosen people. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. What, what kind of God is what? I'm, I'm already they're, being segregated. <laughs> they're the right. unchosen? Right. So I'm the unchosen, right? The, the, uh, the, the grays from uh, uh, Game of Thrones, yep, right? Yep, yep, the grays. I'm like, what is this? What, co- yeah. what kind of God is going to separate me from this? I yeah. don't know. Or if, what, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a, uh, a Catholic school. I attended Catholic school, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm not Catholic, I'm not this. You know, I'm, I'm not worthy of this. Or I'm born a sinner. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. So now I'm getting all these identities. And, you know, I was raised in a Baptist church. So we've got our own way yep. of thinking, right? And then I'm like, no, 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 no. Stop. No more. 
You will not identify me as that. I don't care if if what tribe of Israel you're from. I don't care about what denomination of Christianity you're from. If me and you get along, we we good. We are good. I don't care if you're black, white, gay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like The Rock would say, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So I'm with that. I, I, I feel you, man. I mean, I my my line is is at this point I think is like kind of similar to that. I'm a little bit more binary, I think, to a degree where I'm like, look, man, you either ride for human rights or you don't. Mm-hmm. I don't have necessarily a lot of time left in my life to be patient with people who don't ride yeah. for human right. rights because right. I spent a lot of time being patient with those people and even being submissive to those people. Yes. And for me right now, you know, I don't know how much I'm going to be here, but you know, for the time that I'm here, I'm going to I'm going to speak that that reality for me as best as I know, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that that we just pigeonhole people into into identity conceptions, and we're unwilling to challenge those identity conceptions, and we ask people to make decisions about identity conceptions like the implications of your identifications are evident to you so early Mm -hmm. you know like we look at things like the don't say gay bill in florida and now these other states that are Mm -hmm. you know packing Mm -hmm. in like kids are too young to learn about sexuality and i was like are you fucking kidding me like all the way up through my formative childhood heteronormativity and heteronormalization was a Mm -hmm. thing there was Mm -hmm. literally i write about it like every football coach i had said this this game makes good fathers and it makes good husbands, <laughs> I have good leaders, wow. right? Good fathers, wow. good husbands, good leaders. And then when I became a coach, I said that same shit because it had been said to me yeah. for years. And yeah. the heteronormativity was rife with that. It wasn't, you're going to be a great father with what, another dude. What, 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 that wasn't a, that yeah. wasn't in the conception. And this is the, like, if we get to a segment of reading, and this is the important thing because I have to confront this as a human being, that I trumpeted the same heteronormativity that restricted my own understanding of self and peace with self and somewhere in that sea Mm. of thousands of kids that I saw and sat in front of me in a locker room was another little gay kid trying to figure it all out and I did the same fucking thing to him that got done to me and I have to reconcile that and that is the strength of this that's what that's what I want people to grip and understand I knew I was gay. I was hard in the closet. I was in a long-distance relationship with a dude throughout the entirety of my head coaching career. These were real things. I was actively gay while saying those things in that environment. I am smart. I am capable. I'm proud of myself generally. All that stuff. So, like, what the fuck? So, okay. So, I want to ask the question and um, because I think it, it should be asked. All right. You don't speak for all gay men. No. Right? No. I don't speak for what will be considered a heterosexual man. I don't speak no. for all black men. No. Okay? My question is, if I'm speaking to my kids, one thing I've learned is for, uh, look first to understand, mm. then to be understood. Yeah. Okay? So, if we're talking about locker rooms with a masculine energy, all yep. right? Because that's what the sport, yep, that's sport the teaches, right? If I look at the WNBA, all right, I see a a lot of talented basketball players out there, right? And one of the reasons I don't think the WNBA actually takes off the way it could is because there is a gay um, stamp on it, right? They don't want that. Corporate media doesn't want that. All not, right. Not unless it's June. Not right. Exactly. Not unless it's June. Exactly. 
For the record, so when I set this up with you, I had uh-huh. forgotten sure, it. Was. Sure, sure, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll give so, you the benefit of the doubt, big homie. <laughs> so, so now, why, why, why don't we have coaches out here who can sit down and have? Because I'm sure there are. G- gay young men, gay yeah. young women, trans—you know, whatever of, of both genders, or yeah. I don't know how many genders are now, but whatever that is, why can't you sit down and have the conversation? Why is that not part of the curriculum? I'm not, especially in a locker room, okay? Yeah. Because if I hear, I mean, I've gotten to the point now where I can I can listen to a black joke and laugh, yeah. okay? But can a gay man listen to a gay joke and laugh? Sure. Okay, so if we get that, because here's here's I'm 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 coming from this, but 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 I will say that, and I feel this way about a lot of humor um, as well that like it has to be intelligence. The joke can't be your very existence, and this is my problem with Chappelle. Mm -hmm. And I loved Dave Chappelle. I memorized his whole first stand up, killing him softly. (laughs) I can literally still recite it. I loved Dave, but I can't watch him now. Because his joke mm-hmm. is, look, a tranny. Mm-hmm. And that's not a joke. No, please explain. Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, like, that's not a joke. Mm-hmm. You can make a joke about, like, <laughs> gay men and iced coffee or, you know, yeah. fucking, like, lifestyle, like, <laughs> idiosyncrasies okay. about what it means to be okay. gay in America, what it means to be right. black in America, and about right. the experience. Okay. That's trumpeting. But it's it's not just like, hey, there's a gay guy, let's yeah, laugh at him. Yeah, that's trumpeting. Right. That's yeah. trumpeting right. humanity in a, in, a, in a comedic way. It's bringing the realities of existence out to the forefront in a comic way and forcing people to confront them. And that's mm-hmm. the beauty of comedy. And I can listen to a black joke right. or a gay joke that does that. Okay. But I can't listen to that motherfucker being like, look at that he, she. And the fact that they're there is funny mm-hmm. and I'm going to misgender them and I'm going to fucking just point yeah. like like their like their very existence is the joke. I can't vibe with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I can't anymore. You, you said something and it, it struck a chord with me a little while ago. And, and it's one I'll preface this. I can't imagine, number one, what it would be like to say be just a black kid in a locker room in a predominantly white town be on a football team or ice it's not fun re- yeah i really <laughs> can't imagine being a gay kid for me i was a white straight kid you know and it was very athletic for a while you know now i'm fat and not athletic and i my son beats me up and i'm in pain genuine pain afterwards and he's five um and and the 11 <laughs> the, the 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 11 no the one year old now is 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 beginning to hurt me as well. Nice. So like it's it. so it's it's I'm, uh, Fatherhood. I'm well aware yeah. <laughs> of my now athletic limitations. But at one point in life, I was very athletic. I was immensely uncomfortable in the locker room by the time I got to high school, being my genuine self. Because I mean, so in football, we had a predominantly black locker room. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same as a white kid in a predominantly black locker room as being a black kid in a predominantly white locker room. No one made me feel like I didn't belong there. I was always embraced. I was always, you know, you make some some jokes here or there, but they were lighthearted. They were whatever. But I didn't feel, I was at heart, I was a nerdy kid who was into nerdy things. Mm-hmm. And I loved animals. I wanted to be a marine biologist. I had a conversation with my son the other day because my son wants to be a scientist. Love it. My old Jack, the oldest, wants to be a scientist. And loves animals. And we were talking about being marine biologists. And I was talking about how, you know, I, I originally went to college to be a marine biologist. And, and he was like, well, why, 
why didn't you? And I didn't know how to explain <laughs> From the, the mouths of babes. I, I didn't yeah. know how to explain the answer to him of because of how important sport was to me, I didn't feel comfortable fully embracing how my, my nerdy side that loved li- learning about animals and going out and walking around in wetlands and catching things and mm-hmm. studying them and watching friggin' Star Trek as my dirty pleasure that I wouldn't tell anyone about. And, Are you kidding me? And, oh, and, and I yeah. felt like I had to hide all of that from this big part of my life of sport. So I can't imagine, because that doesn't compare one iota to what it must be like to have been a gay kid in a football locker room. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, I think, like, you know, in, I didn't play as long as you guys, right? So I didn't have the added burden in a sense of being an adult trying to find their way through sport. Mm-hmm. You know, my entire experience with sport as a player was up to, like, 19, right? So, like... I never had that of like being a grown ass human, like making a living or, you know, even collegiately, really. Like the, by the time you're a senior, you're what, yeah. 21, yeah. You're 22? Right. Like, right. You're an adult, uh, sort of. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and, and so, like, in high school, I was very similar to you in a sense of like, except I was not as talented athletically. And I would say, like, I knew that I was different from this environment Mm. right that's what i knew then um biologically i was really trying to figure stuff out i just figured that i was kind of nerdy and anxious and not great at sex you know and um sex is a big part of high school you know these kids are coming in the locker room and i was prepping so you know dorm room and they're talking about Mm. um you know this and that and 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 i felt the pressure there of like I maybe didn't get it all the way, but I certainly knew that sex was something important, not just biologically, mm-hmm. that it was something important from a social perspective and that I could needed it in order to be seen as an equal worthy of respect. And then there was the added confusion of why is something that is supposed to be biologically so simple? Mm-hmm. For everybody else that I'm interacting with, right? (laughs) It's an oxymoron, right? Yep. But like, it's supposed to be easy, right? You have sex, and like, it maybe will be awkward. It might be weird. You might not be any good at it when you're Mm -hmm. doing it for the first Mm -hmm. time, right? But like, the act of it, physically, what you need to do, Mm -hmm. made sense, right? But it didn't to me. So I would get super anxious. You know, it was, you know, even then, like, women weren't turning me on biologically. But something that was biologically simple for everybody else, at least in my mind, was not biologically simple for me. So then I felt a great sense of shame and pressure to, like, overcome that. So I kind of tell myself, oh, this is just something that you're struggling with right now because you're 17 and you're awkward, man. Like, keep trying. It'll get better like anything else. Right. Literally, that's what I'm saying. And so, you know, for 10 years, almost 15 years, I dated women. You know, that's a whole other story, yeah. including long and established relationships as well. They got close to seriousness, be like y'all seriousness. You know what I mean? And like those things are realities, too. So that was like high school. Um, when I got out of college, you know, and I wanted to be a coach because they they were <laughs> everything that I wanted to be from f- at that point in my life from a masculinity standpoint. All of my coaches, man, I just, I saw them as so strong and so dude-like and they seemed so confident and, you know, they always were 
boisterous and booming and they never seemed to not have an answer to things, you know, and like they just yeah. were in control of everything and people respected them. And then when they walked into the cafeteria, people say, well, how you doing, Coach Chaluka? How you doing, Coach so-and-so? You yeah. know, and everybody in the community would know who they were. And I was like, fuck, that's cool. Like, I really want that. And then at the same time, I realized that like almost this was going to be what scared me straight. That's really fucked up to say out loud mm -hmm. that like this environment was what was going to take me and solve this problem. Because back then I still saw it as a problem. I did. I, I, I was like, this isn't going to be my life. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have four kids. I'm going to have a nice house and a nice career. And I'm going to be a coach for 30 years. And people are going to know me as Coach Q. And this is what my life is going to be. And I decided that like when I was like 25, you know, and then. It just kind of kept building and building and building. And then you realize as you listen to these implicit, quiet things that people say and explicit things that people say that like who you are as a person, because by 24, I knew who the fuck I was right. like. They don't value you. Yeah. Like and then when I became a head coach. It doubled down again because now my leadership and my strength has to be the mantle for all of these other mm. people to follow. And by my estimation, their willingness to follow that mantle was directly connected to whether or not they viewed me as a straight man. And I imagine that that is a fear that every gay man in football has. If these people know that I am queer, are they still going to respect me right. in this game? Right. And it's what presents this notion to football players and coaches that you have to choose between the two. Right. You can either be queer or you can be a baller. Wow. And that to me was murderous, you know, and I dove myself into football. I didn't interact with people. I isolated myself. I wasn't a good son in that period. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a good friend, uh, family member in any way, shape or form. Um, I receded almost wholly into my cave and all I did was work on ball. And all I did was work on football. And I just did that and did that and did that and did that and did that. And then, um, yeah, and then my boyfriend was like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the perception. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. You didn't know what to do, yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I, re I really didn't know what to do. I was like, I really want this. Like, I want us to be together. We've been together at this point for five, six years. Like, mm -hmm. I love you, but... You know, I'm still scared and I'm still anxious and da 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 da. And he's like, "Well, I fucking want things, man. So like, you know, we're already doing this shit long distance and it's hard enough. And like, mm -hmm. I fucking want things. And you know, I get it. But like, also like, you yeah. know, you played at University of Nebraska. You know, like or shit like that. You yeah. know, it was like, yeah. come the fuck on. And so there was that. And yeah, so then we, you know, we broke up. I super receded, and I realized like what was actually pooling underneath me was just. Massive amounts of depression, um, and then I entered this de depressed because you 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 didn't come out the way you wanted to. No, I think I, I wasn't even out by then. Okay. I was just I think depressed that because I I I was depressed because I hated who I was and I didn't want to be it. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say that, but I think that there are a lot of people who know what that feels like, and I really again want to be clear that I don't speak for all gay people or queer people, my heroes are the kids who I grew up with who didn't have the option or the opportunity to hide themselves behind conventional masculinity. I had that option and I took it. So part of me was uh, a hatred of self. 
part of it was shame that I took that option that, that I let that fear make me a coward, you know, in that, in that realm of my life that I was preaching authenticity and accountability and strength of self to, to people directly influencing their lives. And I didn't even have the strength to put it into my own life. To thine own self be true. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I was so ashamed of all of that. And then I just, you know, kind of decided I didn't want to, I didn't want to be here. And I started thinking about that. Just how much easier would it all be? I wouldn't have to worry about coming out. I wouldn't have to worry about anybody calling me a faggot or anything like that. I wouldn't have to worry about all my coaching friends, all the kids that I coached snickering somewhere in a college dorm room about how Coach Q is queer now or whatever, you know? And I was like, I don't want to do any of that. And, um, you know, that was the darkest time was right before cancer, you know, was a lot of suicidal ideation, a lot of preparation. It's really weird to talk about that, but, you know, actually setting it up. You know, and like, yeah, um, and football was 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 a, was a part of that. It was like, I feel like we've talked a lot of shit about ball, but you know, it was like it was an enabler in a sense, you know. And like, before I knew it, I had, I just lost every ounce of self determination to this thing. I've got you know, a quote for you. Now, lay I, want it on hear, me. I want to hear your thoughts on this lay quote. It, this lay is, it on this me. reminds me of the quote. Okay. This is by uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, you All got right. me. Gonzo Journalism. Okay. I like it already. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> my hero. <laughs> All other than James Baldwin. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's right. For every moment of triumph, for every instance of beauty, many souls must be trampled. Mm. Yeah. Thoughts. I think that Hunter, did you read it again? Let me hear it one more time. Sure. For every moment of triumph, for every instance of beauty, many souls must be trampled. Yeah, I mean, in one sense, that's the story of humanity and of burning and rebirth and growth and the phoenix rising. Mm -hmm. And I do subscribe to that. Um. It speaks, man, that's a, that, I can't believe I didn't recognize that right out the gate. I'm it's kind right. of mad at myself. That's why we're here. We're having a It is. Um, no, man, I mean, I think it kind of speaks sometimes to, like, people ask me about, like, regret. Mm-hmm. And um, if I were to look at you in the face and say that I don't have regret, I'd be a liar. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to date. I didn't get to have my first relationship. I didn't get to move in with anybody. I didn't experience that. You know, even the stuff that I was doing with women was so anxiety producing that I was literally it's like memorizing lines. You know, it's like you can't really have fun while you're performing a play because you're like in it. I lost 17 years. Two decades, man. That I denied myself authenticity in life consciously. And um, every single time I talk about that, it fucks me up because I can't do anything about it. And the one thing I want to do is do something about that. You've got a time machine in this podcast room. We could talk about it. But when people ask me, do I regret it? Do I regret my life, Mm. my choices? I don't. Not not one. A date where where you came out, do you remember that date as something special? Yeah. It happened in stages. Okay. Um, I came out to my mom on 
Christmas night, or actually the morning of the 26th, because mm-hmm. it was like 1 a.m., okay. and we'd have like right. Christmas dinner up there, and um, all the guests had left. It was just me and Ma. She asked me something about some girl that I was supposedly dating or something, mm-hmm. and I had been lying to her for years, and I just said it. So, yeah. Mom gay. December 26th. December 26th was to my mom. All right. Who responded, well, I already knew that. <laughs> And I said, the fuck you wow. did, Ma. And then I was like, I need to leave. I'm going to go for a drive for a second. Yeah. I took off in my truck and I drove like, you know, a mile down the road yeah. and like calmed myself down and came back. And because I was pretty, it was a big moment. It was the first person that other than my ex and yeah. uh, Rich, who I told you about, mm-hmm. who I mm-hmm. expressed this to. And then, um, and then I didn't, I, I knew I was going to start coming out, but I didn't really know how to do that. And so, and then I got sick. And then I realized that there was nobody to, um, so I, I got cancer and they had to open my neck up, right? Mm-hmm. That from the base of my ear to my Adam's apple. And it was about five hours on the table. And, uh, you know, it's a big surgery. So, yeah. and I realized that I didn't have anybody to um, call my dude, even though we we're broken up we were still in talking i didn't have anybody to call him or or <laughs> the guy i was messing around with at the time um and tell them that i was okay that i that i was awake that i was still here i didn't there wasn't anybody to do that because nobody knew that i was gay except for my mom who was already freaking out that her baby was going to be under the knife for five hours so like i didn't and it was cancer and like mm-hmm. i didn't want her to have that added burden of having to call my ex-boyfriend yeah. You know, and, and, and tell him that I was okay. And um, so I, I, I came out to uh, one of my, one of my, uh, my best friend and his wife, you know, and uh, his wife was first because I wasn't sure that um, I was so scared, man, that like my best friend was going to, it was so irrational. And then I think about it, you know, I was so scared that they were, anybody who was a man was going to be like, fuck him mm-hmm. and just walk away from me. Like I was convinced that it was this, like, as soon as I dropped this, everybody was just going to see me as distasteful and they were going to walk away, you know? And, um, so then I did that so that, so that she could call him and let him know I was okay. And then, uh, I got through that. I got through the season um, uh, 2019, we headed into 2020, we got caught up in COVID, um, didn't go that fall, right? The yep. fall of 2020. Mm-hmm. And it was the spring of, I, yeah. I, and through, so through COVID, I started coming out to my inner circle, like people who were tight, people mm-hmm. who were my friends, you know, um, one of my best friends, Anna Rodriguez, who's a public defender out of Haverhill. She's who I'm going to try to get on a yeah. podcast with. She's great. You know, and her line, because I dated one of her mentors, essentially, uh, back in the day. Like, okay. and we were, everybody thought we were going to get married. And her first line was, wow. So you're not an asshole. You're just gay. <laughs> like, she literally said, she's like, I always thought you were a dick for how that went down. So like, there's some correlation? Real. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, because, like, I had treated my ex-girlfriend at that at time really poorly like i got right. scared and run away i dropped her you know okay. like a bad habit for no reason you know at all other than the fact that i was queer and scared and um so like there was that process and then in the spring of 2021 sorry this is dragging on um we 
had the COVID fall, the bridge season there that we played. Mm -hmm. So we played in like April. Yeah. Um, that was when I pretty quickly realized that I really didn't want to do this anymore. That I wasn't just, I wasn't happy. I didn't have the same spark that I, cause I did have that spark. I want to be really clear. Like I loved coaching and I do mm -hmm. also love ball. Like it's not mutually exclusive. Yep. All the shit that we talked about it. Like there's also something super special about it. Right. So yeah. like, um, but I decided that I didn't want to do this anymore. So, but I did want to experience what it was going to be like being on a football field with um, at least my two number one sort of assistants yeah. knowing. So I came out to Dave and to Bobby. Um, Dave was my DC and Bobby had, I'd known Bobby since he was 10. So like, you know, he, so you weren't comfortable with Sam. I wasn't he there wasn't anymore. there, oh. but no, <laughs> no. Um, and, and so like I came out to the two of them so that I could have, so I could know what it was like to have three or four weeks on a football field with my mm -hmm. brothers and, and them know who, yes. who it was. And cool. they looked at me and those were two guys who helped me through cancer. Yeah. They're like, fuck you. We're going to, we're going to joke. Yep. Right. And they looked at me and we all laughed and Bobby and Dave, or I can't remember which one said it. And they just said, it's really cool that you, you get to be you or something you like get that, to be you know? You. Yeah. And, yes. and like, so we did that. Wow. Um, and then I, I quit. I retired, right? As I say, I, I retired at 40 from something. It was always my goal was to retire from 40 <laughs> at something. I just didn't want it to be from the job that paid me like $10,000. <laughs> you know, uh, but cool. I left. Um, and then that, yeah, it was probably the spring of 2021 pretty soon after that yeah. um, I posted on on Facebook and at the time I was pretty active and blogging and writing and so there was a lot of response yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, and I made a big a big post um, you know coming out publicly and that was a decision too you know like I thought about like is that something that I want to do um, I also thought you know there's not an out high school head football coach in America hmm. not one okay um, I had reached out to a basketball coach years ago, beginning of my coaching career. His name was Anthony um, from the New York area. He's a gay male high school basketball coach and a very successful one. Mm -hmm. um, and we had exchanged me under a pseudonym, Coach X, right? Yeah. Because um, I was so afraid. Like, that's the level of fear that I wouldn't even have a conversation under my real name with another gay man who was in athletics and coaching about what that experience was like. So, like, you know what I mean? Like it, the level of, of wall. So it was like chipping at a piece of it, a piece of it, a piece of it, a piece of it. But what opened the floodgate was mortality. And so then that was it. I came out and, um, it's been interesting. <laughs> Have you, cause I remember we, we had reconnected and I don't remember exactly. It was before your, your, your Facebook post. Cause you told me, when we were talking on the mm -hmm. phone. I came out to you on the yep. phone. Uh, and I remember the Facebook post and hundreds of responses to it. Have you gotten any, um, did you get any or it make its way to you negativity from former players or parents or anything? Um, no, not, not like that. I often say like in America and especially up here that that's not how bigotry works. Yeah. Um, nobody's going to, what are they going to say to my face yeah. out of yeah. that? But what I will say is that, um, I said this about my Facebook post, you know, at the time there were what, like 2,200 followers of that post. 
you would assume that maybe 600 of them aren't actively on Facebook. Yeah. So remove that from the pool. That takes you to 1,600. Mm -hmm. Probably 200 or so people scrolled it and missed it. Yeah. So that takes you to 1,400. Yeah. Um, But if you see that post, you interact with it. Yeah. So it earned about, you know, 1,000 likes or whatever. Yeah. Or reactions, loves. Yeah. Hugs, emojis, whatever fuck else we use to tell yeah. people that we care about them now through the right. digital universe. But there were, you know, in there's a gap there. Like yeah. 300, 400 people who scrolled past saw, that, saw it, saw read it, it, didn't interact and with it. didn't interact with it. And that, to me, like you don't have to like it to prove that you're not a bigot. Yep. But right. the fact that you didn't like that and you know me is saying something. I also had a, 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 a young brother out in California who we were working with who yeah. – we had I had really negative interactions with not necessarily about the gay because he had disowned his own brother after his brother had come out and he called me to say I didn't want to make the same mistake with you that I made with my with my brother. Come on, man. right? Exactly. Yeah. And I said, cool, yeah, no, let's talk about it. But he drew the line at, at trans, yeah. and there's only a biological man and a biological woman. And I said, well, I don't, I don't care to know you at this point anymore, right. man. Like I just right. I'm done, bro. Yeah. Like you got fifty thousand dollars of free consulting off of me off of the, yeah. you know the basis of the fact that I just trying to help a young black man get out. But, like, you know, you're going to speak that trash somewhere else. And we, you know, blocked. So there's definitely been moments like that. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, like, we have this sense of self-importance. And I like myself a lot, especially now. So, like, we always believe our narrative to be of importance to everybody else. Um, but the reality is that most people don't give a fuck. You know, they're they're trying to live their life. They got their own things going on, man. Like who you're sleeping with and who you're lying with mm -hmm. and who you want to marry is not really far in the front of their conception. But there still is, you know, experiences of distaste. Um, my ex is very fond of saying that that America is fine with homosexuality, but it struggles with gay couples. You know, it, it struggles with like that image of, you know. And I and I do see shit like that. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I was down in the North End with this dude that came out from New York. That's a really nice guy, and I'm kind of messing around with. And um, we went out to dinner, you know. And like, we being us, we being what any normal couple on a date would be. But you know, you get you get looks, you get sneers. One of my exes in the Boston area lived over Charlestown. We were up on his roof deck. At one point, we were, like, canoodling on his roof deck. You know, we just made dinner, ate dinner on the roof looking over the Constitution and shit. He had a very nice apartment. And uh, and we're just hanging out, and there's a dude on the building across from us, and he is leaning up, and he's wearing, like, a, some sort of Charleston Irish shirt or whatever, and he's fucking staring at us. And you can see it. Like, I'm not a dummy, bro. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at this dude. And finally, I'm like, what? And I yelled it across the set of building. Like, what? And... My dude is trying to be like, dude, come down, come down, come down. I'm like, nah, y'all gotta go. I'm going downstairs right now. I'm gonna see you on fourth. I'm gonna be there, right? And it, it took over me, like this weird mm -hmm. sense. So like these moments of reactions that do exist, man, like I don't pretend to believe that all of the people who tell me that they're happy for me um, or that they're proud of me don't see my lifestyle, fuck lifestyle, don't see who I am as a person as not distasteful like right. you know they they're still like eh. even my mom we had a conversation right because like you know my my proclivity everybody has a type or whatever but like mm -hmm. i like chonky boys right like that's my vibe <laughs> it is what it is mm -hmm. right and so like my mom 
try to set me up on a date. Right? She ain't never done this shit. She was so excited to get to do this. Jewish mother, she was pumped. Now she's like, I finally know what's up. Now I'm going to get on. So she calls me. She's like, my friend, so-and-so, her son is at Tufts. He's doing an advanced degree there. And... Um, he's new to the area. He doesn't know anybody. Yeah. So I was, you know, I said maybe you would meet up and show him around, you know, the Medford area, Somerville area a little bit, mm-hmm. which is where I am. And, um, and she goes, and also he's gay. Mm-hmm. And I said, Ma, trying to set me up. Right, right, right. right and right. she goes, well. <laughs> and I said, is he like 6'3", 275 pounds? And she goes, no. I think he's I think he's one of those slender and sophisticated gays. <laughs> That's what she said. And and I go, yeah, it's not really my vibe. Oh my God. And she goes with this look of just pure disappointment on her face. She goes, I know. And then she's like, looks really weird and uncomfortable. And I go, are you uncomfortable right now? And she goes, a little bit. And I go, does talking about gay sex make you uncomfortable? This is my 70-year-old mother. Yeah? She's, she's like, yeah, a little bit. And I go, cool. Now you know exactly how I felt, right? Like, So like, there's this weird dichotomy where like, talking about two dudes together and what it is that they're doing, Like, think about how many conversations you've had with other men about sexual activity with women. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Yeah. Now imagine that there is a dude who doesn't process that mm-hmm. for whatever reason or just doesn't like yeah. hearing about it who's just yeah. there. But it's so normalized that, like, what the fuck are you supposed to do about it? You know, it's like I, I asked, I told my buddy, I was like, hey, man, we're going to go down the alley, watch the game or whatever, right? I was like, you want to come? I'm going with my, my dude Joe, who's uh, uh, a gay dude who lives close to me, who's a friend. And he's like, ah, it's a gay bar. I don't know. I'm like, what the fuck? I've been going to straight bars Dude. for 15 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it's free. Like, I got to yeah. walk in there and watch y'all feeling up on each yeah. other and touching up on each other, trying to get with each yeah. other and all that stuff. And, like, you can't come into our environment and do that. It's yeah. that, like, you're, it's distasteful. Mm-hmm. And it is distasteful. You know, you can see yeah. it. it and, and so for me, the homophobia and the bigotry, man, it lives there. It lives in an expression right now up here, mm-hmm. not, like, in other places in America and somebody else said something, a very, 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 very wise gay man said to me, he said, every gay man in America has yelled, fa- has had faggot yelled at them out of the, the window of a moving vehicle. Do they call each other faggots? Yeah. Like if you get, you get angry? <laughs> do, do we get angry like inside the gay community? Right, yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot of like N-word energy to that. Okay. Right? You All know right. what I mean? Okay. Like, um, but different, you know, it's appropriations of words. Yes. Um, People have, just like the black community, man, people have different opinions. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some people who feel mm-hmm. a sense of power and reclamation. There are some people who think it's a fucking ugly-ass word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, same sorts of conversations that are happening there. Um, for me, the re- reclamation of queer is pretty dope. I like that one more than... It's, it's really hard I mean, you wouldn't be like, what's up, my... No, no, Like we would in, in right. our community, it's not as... Okay. But I, I think that's more of a... Weirdly, because race and there's a great intersectionality between LGBTQIA plus issues and race. What, what's IA? I'm sorry. I, I intersexual IA. and asexual. Okay. Right. All right. And so the, the, the alphabet keeps growing. People make fun of that. Right. right. Alphabet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, it's really because we're just gaining a broader yeah. understanding of sex and gender and what it means to be human. We always saw these things as binary and they're really a fluid spectrum. Mm-hmm. Like, I hate to tell you all this, but everybody a little bit gay. 
You're telling me that we spent years in sports that have tight-fitting uniforms and short shorts and little tight pants that these dudes are wearing where your muscles are bulging out and there just isn't a tiny little bit of homoeroticism in that shit? <laughs> just a little wee bit, right? The butt slaps and the butt taps and the, you know, like, there, there is. And the crazy thing is that that's okay. So with the butt slap, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? All right. Yeah, why, I, like, right, why right, am right. I doing this? Like, <laughs> right. Why in this environment? Like, can you imagine if you did right. that in any other place? Like, you're sitting at your workplace and you're like, hey, uh... Jim, could you go run those copies for me? Great job, buddy. <laughs> so, so, no, that's that's really weird. I like that because if you're a male coach, you have no problem with 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 smacking yep. a male mm-hmm. on the butt. But if you're a male coach coaching females, female? you're like, ooh, let me stay away from that, that right? You're, right? You're Can't trouble. do that. And and so that's but that speaks to yeah. kind of wow. the fear with which we address gender and sexuality yeah. and how that plays into our life and also how uncompromising people are. So for me, like with trans identity, this was something, I mean, dude, I'm born in 1982. Like to me, trans was the movie fucking Tootsie Mm -hmm. with Dustin Hoffman, you know, or like Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything. You know, like that was my conception of what it meant to be trans. But that wasn't trans. That was Mm cross-dressing, which is very different. And like as I've come out and gained access, man, to a community that I had willfully rejected of beautiful people. Like, I am learning so much about what I did not know. Yeah. And people are willing to talk about it. They're just not willing to talk about it with somebody who's going to tell them what it means to be them. And that is the line that I draw. Listen, man, I don't talk about nobody else's narrative. I ain't said shit about your narrative. Mm-hmm. I ain't said shit about your narrative. Mm-hmm. I've only talked about mine. Yeah. And I want to be really, really clear that that narrative doesn't universally apply. Right. There are some people who will share in it and there are others who won't. But it's real. This shit happened to me. I'm not sitting here making up stories about my experience and my perception to feel like a victim. I go nuts when people are like, oh, so poor me, self-victimization. Like, nah, man, it's not self-victimization. I was victimized by my society. I am a victim of my society. I'm not ashamed to say that I am because I'm still fucking here. Mm. So I am a survivor of that victimization. I'm standing up here to preach about what led to that victimization. I'm rejecting it in my own self, in my own narrative for sure. But I'm not going to sit here and, like, it's the stock phrase of, like, oh, you're just playing the victim. No, No, I'm not playing the victim. Right. I am the victim. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be the victim. And it is the one thing that white straight men don't get to be, and that's why it pisses them off. And that's why they want it. You know, when they they say, do I start with the phrase, you know, you just want to be the victim? Well, but this is nuanced. I recognize that I am a victim, but I refuse to remain one. Yeah. So I'm gonna call you out on your bullshit. Yeah. No, you, you, you're, oh, you're mine. No, no, not oh, you. No, no, no. Please not, do, because no, I got a lot of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother, she, uh, you know, born and raised down south, and she was on her deathbed. And my aunt, my aunt uh, was gay. All right, she passed away from Hodgkin's yep. lymph- uh, lymphoma. And um, I remember being kept away from my aunt. Okay, because my grandmother wasn't having it. You know, yeah. my mother was, you know, of course, my aunt's sister. And uh, there were a lot of secrets in my family. Yeah. So my grandmother being on her deathbed, speaking of people who will not change, my aunt is coming <laughs> down from Boston and taking care of my grandmother, you know, because she's sick and, you know, it, it's really getting to her now. She can't move that well. Yeah. And now she's gotten to the point where she's got to clean her. 
you know, yeah. because hospice wasn't coming in. And yeah. so my aunt is taking care of my grandmother. And the, my grandmother says, and she was never, she was never okay with my aunt being gay. All right. So she says to her, and as, as, as my aunt is trying to undress her, she says, don't you play with my panties. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's I'm so what, like, what? what? It's so it's Stop really it. fu- yo, it's really funny to me sometimes too, man, how like there's this weird I've noticed that there often is like it's in the in the reaches of people who are struggling with this, right? Mm-hmm. With with sexuality and homosexuality and, and alternate I hate that phrase, alternate sexualities, right? Just sexuality. Okay. Good. Yeah. But they're struggling with it. Is like this assumption that we can't fucking control ourselves is mad insulting. Yeah. Like, you know, like, bro, I I don't know what to tell you. Like, do y'all literally try and fuck every or woman that you come across? And, and I'm scared of yeah. the answer, too. Yeah. Because part of the answer is like, well, we kind of talk about it, like, all the time. But, like... No, man. Like we're cap- people are capable of existing in professional situations, yeah. recognizing somebody is attractive and not, you know, and trying again, to do anything. My yeah. favorite are my straight friends who love. I mean, not in a bad way, but like who are into the gay attention. Like I went to lunch with my my buddy from high school, Zach, whose name I'll say because he's literally we've been friends since we were fifteen. He was a defensive end. We called mm. him Condor because his arms were crazy right. long. They, like, went down to, like, shins. It was incredible. <laughs> um, and we were having and we were having lunch. We went somewhere in Belmont Center, yeah. actually, right? And okay. I snapped a picture on my Twitter, and I posted it to my Bear Instagram because I have, a, like, a my work Instagram, and I have my Bear okay. Instagram, okay. my mm. gay Instagram. And, um, so a bear, a bear is a, a bear gay. is a larger, usually hairy gay man. <laughs> okay. So, I did not know dude, that. Oh, gay, I'm, gay I'm, men are divided into there's otters, there's bears, there's wolves, there's just covered the animal twinks, kingdom. Twinks, a lot of okay. animals. <laughs> okay. Right. You know, there's, and I've had to learn because I w- like was out of this environment for so long, willfully, right. like I've had a lot of learning to do about my own community. And okay. some of it is shitty too, man. There's a lot of like racism in the gay community. There's a lot of like classism in the gay community. There's, you know, like being a marginalized person doesn't mean that you're free from yeah. marginalizing other people, right? right. So like right. you can do that still. You don't get a free pass. It's mm-hmm. not like you're just like, oh, you're gay, so you don't you don't oppress people. Mm-hmm. No, nah, like Peter Thiel is gay. He's oppressing millions of people through his funding of mm-hmm. ridiculous shit. So, um, anyway, sitting there, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna make you bear famous, bro. And I like put it up there. And I like took a picture. I'm like out to out to dinner. I posted on my bear Instagram. I was like, sorry, boys, he's a straight, he's a, he's a straight fella, you know. <laughs> but like, he's his first question when I came out to him was, "Am I the first person you told?" And I was like, "No." And he's like, "Who'd you tell before me?" I was like, "My mom and Mark and Tina." He's like, "You told Mark and Tina before me." Why did you do that? <laughs> he was so offended that like somebody else got the secret right, before he did, right. and that was love. You know, he, yeah. he he's like, I just I don't understand why you couldn't tell me. I don't understand. I I, I want to be there for you. I want to help you with that. And he finds it hilarious because I'm like, yo, look at all these thirsty motherfuckers who think you're cute, bro. Like, and to be able to have that and not feel like that's weird, right? Yes. That is a great yeah. test to like, how accepting are you really in your heart of this reality? Like, if I show you somebody to be like, yo, this dude thinks you're mad fucking cute. Are you going to be like, 
cool with that and giggly about yeah. it, happy about it? Or are you going to try to play off like you're okay with it, but really what you're thinking is, man, fuck that gay shit. And, like, that is the masculine battle, right, that exists in straight masculinity as I see it all the time mm. is, like, somehow, like, my gayness affects you, right? right. Like, and it, right. it doesn't. Like, what does it matter to your life yeah. ain't changing other than the fact that we met, had a cup of coffee together, talked into yeah. these microphones for two hours. You're going to go home and live your life. I'm going to go home and live mine. And yeah. hopefully our paths will cross again and we get to do some cool shit. But, like, this notion that existence affects your existence or your existence just by virtue of the fact that I like penis, like, <laughs> is absurd. Well, it's it, like when you say it out loud, it's like mm -hmm. fucking comical. Like, what? Like, <laughs> Like, what the fuck, bro? Like, I've seen, I've had people show me fucking porn, like, on their phone, and just yeah. be like, yo, look at this. And it's straight porn. Can you imagine if I did that with, like, what I watch? Oh, I yeah. could imagine. I could imagine. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, yo, look at this shit. <laughs> and it's crazy to me, man, now that, like, you know, porn has a lot of problems yeah. as an industry as porn, um, full stop, whether it's gay or straight. But, you know, I mean, I've literally had coworkers, men, coaches, mm -hmm. people, friends at a bar just like, you know, yeah, find a graphic video, a sexually graphic video, and they would just throw that shit across the table at you and put it in your face and you were supposed to look at it. And then you start to think about like, man, I got to react to this. Mm -hmm. So if somebody turns a picture as like an Instagram model or mm -hmm. something in a bikini, at sitting at church in our coaches, not a real church, we yeah. used to call our meeting room church, right? We're sitting in our coach's office, somebody, another coach turns this thing over, slides it over to me, right? And they're like, yo, look at her. I have to react to that, yeah, right? And, and it has to be, I literally have to act because what I'm thinking, like, I'm capable of seeing beauty, yeah, and I'm like, nah, she's a beautiful woman. Yeah. But I'm not responding to yeah. that beauty the same way that he's responding to that beauty but i believe that i need to let him know that i am responding to it the same way that he is so that he trusts me and he doesn't think that i'm you know funny like that yeah uh, you just caught me so you you call it church oh i, th I think that's hilarious it's hilarious considering yeah. what the catholic church has done yeah. throughout history i'm just yeah no it. It, <laughs> like, church, boom, boom. church was we call church <laughs> the segment of our we call church the segment of our meeting where everybody would debrief yep. and if you had anybody could say anything yeah. That was the purpose of church. Nice. After every practice, if you had a beef, if you had a problem, right, yeah. you would talk church. about what you did well, talk about what you did poorly. We, mm -hmm. we went around the table. Sam probably remembers this, mm -hmm. right? We went around the table. Everybody had to say one good thing you did coaching, one bad thing you did coaching. Be real. Go to church. And yeah. if you had beef, mm -hmm. because nothing kills a team. Like, put your beef on the mm -hmm. fucking table. Be a table. grown human being yep. and say, hey, man, I kind of had a problem with how you talked to me today. And I'll be like, really? Why don't you tell me about that? Mm -hmm. And let's talk about that. And if I think it's not a problem, I'll be like, look, I got to be perfectly honest with you. I got to run my team. I'm sorry that you were offended, but it's what it is. That's one of the issues in sports. Coaches won't speak to their players directly. You know, Stop it's it. always general. And the players have they have problems with mm -hmm. that. They, they want to know. You got to speak yeah. on yeah. equal terms. Yeah. Well, so one one thing yeah. that I want to do as we are really up against the time wise oh. is I want to give you an opportunity if you want. I think you had a, a segment from your book that you, oh. if you would like to, it's it's. Uh, uh, yeah, we can put it. We can put it down. And I mean, it was. I was saying. To, I was saying to Sam, and if we don't, if you don't like it, y'all can cut it in post production. Uh, you know. Um, but uh, what you call it? Uh, I was trying to figure out what section to really read because there's a lot of different sections. There's no bear on the screen. What's that? There's no bear on the screen. There's no bear. There's, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> Bobby. There can be. 
careful what you wish for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, but since we kind of talked a yeah. little bit about this, I'll, I'll, I'll read this section because it was I, I got to find it now. Um, I'll definitely read this section. It's 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 from the section that's called um, this is part seven so far. Where the hell am I now? Nope. Because um, we are pushed up on time. Here we go. Um, and it's called status quo. So it's really talking about my transition into head coaching you know um so you know i'll read a little section of that because we talked a little bit about that um by 2014 life had reached the status quo of precarious balance for the next five years i would feel something like a tightrope walker carefully placing one foot in front of the other feeling for the wind trusting that technique and practice would carry me across just this once For each time, that was all I needed. One more walk across the expanse and space to plan for the next one. Seven years to my tenure at Matinon and professionally comfortable, I was resolved to be a career educator and to do so in this place. I told myself that being a big fish in a small pond wasn't so bad, that this was where I could actually affect some manner of functional social change and I began to tell people that I had visions of being a principal one day. If I had been an established entity in this place before, now I was sliding into becoming a part of the institution itself. Older siblings told their younger brothers and sisters, wait until you have Coach Q. And every year in the yearbook, when the seniors listed their defining everyday school experiences in the you know you went to Matin on when section, There was something about me walking through the halls, singing to myself on an off period, or catching someone with their phone during a school assembly. And this transition in my life, from job to career, from the sense of options remaining to the reality of decisions already made, was palpable. In an instant, life became prescribed and routine. And with that routine came ease. I am not sure if life is ever meant to be this way. Certainly not with an ongoing suppression of self. Mostly, I suppose, I felt the environment was controllable. That I had learned to play the game here and was becoming adept at it. Everything and everyone were known entities in this place and at this point, myself included in that. And predictability is an asset, perhaps the asset, when you're hiding in plain sight. Football life was a double down as well. After two years as a defensive coordinator at School B, I was hired as the head coach at Belmont High, tasked with revitalizing a program that had gone 1-21 over the past two seasons. For me, this was the culmination of an identity and professional path that I had spent 10 years simultaneously crafting and navigating, not only to satisfy career ambitions, but protective instincts as well. Over all this time, football had become my constant, my source of affirmation, where I cemented my masculinity, where I disappeared, and increasingly, my excuse for being antisocial and receding into my cave. As I stepped into the mantle of head coach, I was equal parts proud and terrified. For while this was the realization of so many of my hopes and dreams for my future, It also threw me into a local spotlight, a managerial spotlight, a 
cultural spotlight and spotlighted my failure to fulfill the conventional social markers that this particular segment of America valued. The booster moms expected a Mrs. Q. I know this because they told me so. I shrugged them off. I'm married to the game, I said half-jokingly. I'm like Randy Shannon. <laughs> Though it wasn't just the booster moms. I wasn't a piece of a staffing puzzle anymore. I was the piece. And I felt the mantle of being exemplary for both my players and my staff. This meant fulfilling their expectations not only for stock qualities like character and leadership, but for more socially connected ones like manhood and toughness. In lots of ways, our program was different. We centered ourselves in unconditional love as our defining ideal, connected toughness to vulnerability, and embraced failure in the immediate as a progressive stepping stone in our long-term path to success. We carried this banner of difference proudly into the community, working diligently to change perceptions of football and football coaches. My primary assistants and I lived at the school. I had brought Dave with me from Stoneham. He had played for me at Matinon in 2007 as a serviceable center, and now he was my young firebrand, just like I had been for Bob. And I felt warm and cyclical as we slogged our way through weight room sessions and spring season baseball and lacrosse games where we would chat up parents concerned about giving their children over to such a violent game. Especially at a time when the long-term effects of concussive and subconcussive impacts were dominating conversation about the sport. Will Smith would be nominated for an Oscar for concussion the following year. 99% of the time, I told them, you'd be justified in those concerns. But you found the exception. And I believed that when I said it. This was the public face. We were better than most behind closed doors too. But it would be naive to think we were immune from the running undercurrent of this particular river, especially in the coach's office, though it seeped into our program culture and player interactions as well. This speaks to how central traditional American masculinity is to this particular game. Even a brown, closeted, gay high school head coach couldn't fully escape it or change it. In fact, he even had to trumpet some of it himself in order to be taken seriously for the conceptions of leadership and strength that I felt the pressure of exemplifying for my staff were connected to whether or not they viewed me as a man worth following. By my estimation, this was connected to whether or not they viewed me as a straight man. And this is something that I imagine every single gay man in football has felt and does feel because it never goes away. Some of this data I gathered from explicit moments, like when an assistant coach said jokingly, nah, I ain't down with no gay shit like that during a coach's conversation that had wandered into the topic somewhat uncomfortably for me of our attitudes towards homosexuality. Or when after a fundraising drive run by a private fundraising company, the owner of that company and I stood outside talking after the money count, and he revealed that his Christian identity meant that he just believed some things to be absolute truths, one of which was that homosexuality was plain wrong and gay marriage an insult to a holy sacrament. Then he told me it was a blessing to know me and work with me and got in his car to head home with his 10K cut, of course. Most of the data, however, just was like wind or rain, 
a basic and unavoidable part of existing that rested outside of my control. In that sense, I just put on a poncho and went about my day. This is the last paragraph. When I was a young boy, I lived with my mother for four years in Thailand, where she was posted with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Everything about life was new then, and my memory of it all is spotty. But I remember the rainy season. Big, fat, Forrest Gump-type rain that fell for weeks, months even, giving life a damp weight and consistency. This faded blip of memory is the closest I can get to describing this period of my life. When the closet had become wholly the norm for me as I pushed forward into my 30s and more adult professional ambitions. It was no longer an if I was going to have to confront myself in some manner over the course of the day, nor even a when, but a question of how many times, how much damage, and how to keep all that came with this locked away. While the explicit moments defined for me that who I actually was as a person was not welcome here, in this space, these did not make the rainy season, for these were quick bursts of storm, complete with lightning bolts and swirling winds, as quick and violent in their departure as in their performance. It was the seemingly innocuous that brought in the damp, moments rooted in cultural acceptability and nonchalance. Those offhand comments from a booster mom, an assistant with wandering eyes who couldn't see a woman walk past on the sidewalk that ran alongside our practice field without commenting on her. Another one killing time before practice, scrolling on Instagram, turning the phone around and sliding it across the table to display a woman in lingerie or something of the like. And the culture of the kids and the American high school experience chimed in on it all. Ever since I started with football as a player, I heard coaches talk on how this sport made good citizens and good leaders and good workers and good fathers and good husbands. These images were rife with implications of heteronormativity and likely contributed to my sense of being an other before I even really knew I was one. As I took the mantle of my program, I found myself saying these same words as though it were nothing more than reflex. Once again, adding bricks to the very same walls keeping me from myself. And since in many ways a lot of coaches are reliving their youth in some way, shape, or form, that also includes reliving the locker room, where attitudes towards sex and sexuality live as well. This operates simultaneously on multiple levels, like a dramatic British miniseries about an aristocratic house and their servants. Upstairs in the coach's office, the boys who look like men play in their locker room. And downstairs, the boys who are still boys do just the same. These two worlds interact around these topics almost never. But to say they never interact would be disingenuous, if only because, as my grandmother used to say, little pitchers have big ears. <laughs> but this, too, is incomplete because it implies that this process was osmosis of the dominant and nothing more. We had culpability here as professionals. We gave too much latitude to this space for whatever our own individual reasons. As each year I watched our closed door roast your coach skits during camp increasingly walk the thin line of acceptable, it felt irrationally like something I could not prevent without exposure. We had done this at school A and again at school B, so I did it here. 
this is how the concept of the other reinforces itself over time without any real thought because somewhere in that sea of players who I stood in front of over the years was another me another little gay kid trying to figure it all out well it's a good stop yeah <laughs> I think it speaks a little bit to a lot of what we were kind of getting at today I, I agree Q I, I can't thank you enough for coming in oh, and man. sharing your story with us uh and, um, you know, I just I, I really once again, thank you for, for coming. Oh, wow, man. Thank sharing. you guys for having me, man. It was a uh, it was really an honor to, to be here and to talk with y'all. Y'all are y'all are dope as fuck. So, yeah, you know, I appreciate you being here. Um, it's, it's cool. I'll be listening. You know, <laughs> I'll be listening, not I, just to the one I'm on. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> no, nah, thank you guys, man. Thank you very much. Buy the book, <laughs> The Hippo Inside. The Hippo Inside. Shout out. <laughs>